Koto. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Epic Aotearoa Create a Better Future podcast, where every week we share uplifting messages told by New Zealanders in their own words. Our mission is to share the learnings from those lived experiences, inspire our listeners to take positive action, and go out there and create a better future. Proudly brought to you by co-founders Joe Hortai, former soldier in the Special Air Service, family man and aspiring entrepreneur, and Brian Osman, a knowledge engineer, family man, entrepreneur, and all-round good dude. Thank you for connecting with us today. Now let's get started and create a better future. Let's go. And welcome back, everyone, to Epic Aotearoa Create a Better Future podcast, where we have the privilege of having our first official guest for the new series in the service of others who dares wins. Our guest today is a true example to not only myself, but to all those that come into contact with him of service, leadership, dedication, focus, humility, and above all else, friendship particularly to me. He has an incredible track record of service, including, but not limited to, being an operator, team commander, and troop commander in the New Zealand Special Air Service, a doctor who has served and helped people in various parts of the world, whether serving in the busiest trauma hospital on the planet in Soweto, South Africa, to working as part of a rescue helicopter team or volunteering on charity missions around the world, providing expert security protection, advice, analysis, and consultancy for major corporations and high-profile individuals, flying tourists around Sydney, Australia as a helicopter charter pilot to serving as a loving husband and father. Ladies and gentlemen, Aotearoa, New Zealand, the one and only Mr. Bill Bestick. Kia ora, brother. Welcome. Kia ora. That's it. I love it. Wow. I need to uh, <laughs> laminate that and give it to my wife. <laughs> You're getting, yeah. I'm going to put that on the fridge. I love it. <laughs> man, so good to see you, bro. Good to see it's you too, man. You time. look well. Yeah, so do you. Got quite a few more grey whiskers on my face and here. I noticed. I blame that on blame that on my wife and kids. Yeah, same. <laughs> but mate, um, man, there's so much to to discuss and unpack with you. Really keen to get your insights and your experience and have you share your lived experiences with our audience because I know it will just be valuable and, and mind blowing in many respects as well. Um, with all due respect, so. I'm going to dive straight in, and I just want to ask Bill because I've never asked you this, never had that opportunity, or never, never had that time. Why did you? Why did Bill Bestick join the Special Air Service? What was your reason? What was the motive and drive for you to do that? Yeah, I think looking at a few of the things I've done in life, there's a common theme in that I've naivety's got me a long way through life, <laughs> and. I didn't know much about the SAS at all. If I'm really brutally honest, this is going to sound really puerile. But when I was seven, I have a distinct memory. I was in Singapore. My dad was at uh, the time commanding officer of the infantry battalion over there, one RNZIR. Right. And uh, I had decided, I'm not quite sure how, that I wanted to be a parachutist. Gotcha. I was going to be a parachutist. And I said to dad, I've decided that when I grow up, I'm going to be a parachutist. What did uh, your dad say? And he was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> and 
I must, I think I had, I'd been reading something, maybe it was a commando comic or some kind of kids thing where it talked about guys that parachuted behind enemy lines. And I said to my dad later, oh, there's guys in the army that do parachuting behind enemy lines. I'm going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, oh, well, we have guys in the army that do that. They're called the SAS. I said, oh, okay then. Well, that's me. I'm going to be in the SAS. (laughs) And then over time, I didn't know then that my dad had served with the SAS in Vietnam and I didn't know anything about the unit. But over the next few years, I'd just read and absorbed as much as I could about the unit and then it just became an absolute drive right through my through every aspect of my life from seven years on that this is what I was going to do and uh the more I read about it the more I wanted to be and I guess like you we didn't have visibility on the SAS did we we never saw them that's right and that made it more and more mystical it became its absence made it even more mystical and I remember going and we're in Wauru. Uh, again, I would have been about 12 or 13, and there was a thing called the Desert Fair, like a showground thing they had every year in Wauru. Right. And I wandered along to that, and I was really excited because I'd bought a cookery off the Gurkhas, you know, the, the knife that they carry. Yeah. And I was uh, pretty excited because uh, I'd had this cookery. And then I saw these two guys with smocks and sandy berets and thought, wow, that's that's them. They exist. And I remember just kind of walking up, standing near them, not speaking, yeah. just kind of being in the presence of greatness, you know. <laughs> These guys are probably looking at me like, what are you doing? Yeah. Piss off. Um, and then maybe like you, that, that mysticism around the beret meant that I remember being struck when I went on selection that all of a sudden I was seeing these people face-to-face that I'd never even met or talked to or knew nothing about, mm-hmm. but there was certainly a – a mana and a presence to them and uh uh i don't know they just all had a similar look yeah they all carried themselves in a certain way um and i was very starstruck by that whole concept and a beret and and that that's sort of what drove me i guess to wanting to join and kept thinking well this is it this is you've got to be the best that you can be mm-hmm. and i really embrace the whole ethos of that unit and what it stood for and mm. it just sat well with me so that's really probably what drove me beautiful man that's amazing from seven years of age and i love the way you describe that there was uh, there is that that mana and that respect and that character about those individuals and yeah i can i can relate to that being uh being myself starstruck <laughs> when I, when I yeah those. i mean it's a bit sad but that's yeah yeah <laughs> It's true, eh? Man, that's so cool. Hey, hey, you mentioned I didn't know that about your father as well. Would you be able to just speak a bit about that? So your dad served in the SAS as well. Well, yeah, interesting. He's got an interesting backstory there. So my dad, just very quickly, he did 34 years in the Kiwi Army, finished as a brigadier commander of land forces in New Zealand. And uh, he served as a platoon commander with one one that I own. In fact, I... He commanded 7 Platoon and Whiskey Company, and my first command was 7 Platoon and Whiskey oh. Company. And he was a company commander uh, of Alpha Company and CEO. And he he did uh, selection as a captain. Same as you, right? You did it as a pass, captain? Yep. Yeah, yeah, past selection, and then was posted to Papakura from Wellington right. at the time. 
and he said the house was packed, all in boxes. And then two days before he's, this is, you know, as we know what the army can do to you, two days before he was posted, he got a call to say, we're cancelling your posting to the SAS because we need you as a staff officer in the headquarters in Wellington because someone's quit. And he was like, well, I don't want it. Well, too bad. (laughs) So he got promoted early to major and took up the staff job, hated it. And then Vietnam came up. So he volunteered to go to Vietnam, was told, there's no jobs for majors. You're a major now. That's it, right. So he managed to fight to drop his rank back to captain and got himself posted to Vietnam. And then towards the end of his tour, which was 12 months then, he was told, right, when you return to New Zealand, you'll go back to what was then the squadron. So he thought, and you'll be commanding. Wow. see. So he thought, well, shit, I've never done any, haven't even been troop commander. So he got himself posted to uh, the SAS troop in Vietnam as a trooper so that he could do some time as a trooper before he took command. So he did that. I uh, was attached to um, the SAS in Vietnam, Got landed back in New Zealand and got told, nah, you're not going back to the unit. You're going to be chief instructor school of infantry. Uh, and as chief instructor, you'll be sent to the UK for three months to learn about oh, divisional yeah. tactics. So he said, well, instead of going to the UK, why can't I go back to Vietnam? So he went back to Vietnam uh, and did a sniping course and other things. But so he never, I, I think it was a, a tough thing for him because he never actually got badged. Uh, even though he served on operations of the unit, he did selection and maybe it was bittersweet when he saw me get badged um, but I remember during my selection course on the officer selection, one of the uh, senior NCOs had said to me, you're just here to collect the best badge. That's it. That's we don't want right. you. One of the BS said that to you. <laughs> on the, on the... Oh, you know, when, when you do the officer yeah. selection, there's a component there where, you know, you present a plan, a tactical plan, and really it's just a vehicle for everyone to <laughs> abuse you and – and see how you tolerate uh, yeah. NCOs yeah. And that was, abusing you. Was that at the see, is that at the end yeah. of the normal selection? Then you just do the extra officer bit, right? That's right. So there's another three. Yeah. I think it's three days or four days once selection finishes, and there's some physical tasks on that. But really, it's centered around two presentations that you give to this tiered auditorium with every sergeant and above in the unit and every officer. They give you about 20 minutes in yeah. silence to present your plan. Then you walk outside for a few minutes. Then they bring you back in and they start to question you on your plan. But halfway through giving an answer, someone will just yell at you from the back, you know, like just, just, a, just a torrent of abuse. And because my dad had, you know, he was a pretty straight shooter and he'd um, some of those guys sitting there had been yeah, screwed over right. by my dad, right? They'd um, – one of them said to me once, he goes, I remember in Singapore in front of the whole battalion on parade, your dad stood up and said, you know, there's about 5% of this battalion that ruin it for everyone, 5%. And I'm going to call them out on it. And he said, he called us out and stood us in front of the whole battalion and said, you wonder who the 5% is? It's these pricks standing right here. And he goes, we were standing there going, What? So some of these same guys that had been called out were now 
sergeants in the unit. And I think they had a lot of respect for them, but um, I sort of had to, I carried that extra kind of burden in a way that um, John Knight had said to me afterwards, oh, look, I've, I probably should apologise for the how much we slagged off your dad there. It's more that we need to be clear about your intentions of coming here and people need to know that you haven't got here on anyone else's reputation. Um, so we have to unmask that and we have to address it and, you know, you've got to stand on your own two feet kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it was just kind of funny. But I, I think seeing what happened to my dad and, and the same as what happened to you on Cycle, that the army is just thoughtless and brutal when it comes to yeah, yeah. that kind of behaviour, isn't it? There's uh, its capacity to treat people poorly mm. is just unprecedented. Yeah. It's unprecedented. Um, so you know, he he went through life. Uh, I remember once, and after I was badged, I bought him like a oh. little enamel mug from the unit <laughs> UPF, <laughs> right, with a with a wing dagger on it and I gave it to him, I don't know, <laughs> slack present, some Christmas thing or something. And he gave it back to me. He goes, no, I'm not badged. I don't, I'm not taking that. I'm like, wow. Did, did he, did he come to the badging ceremony? He the did very late. I mean, I didn't think he's going to turn up, but he, uh, and what's quite funny is he turned up and then he just like in front of everyone, he just starts, cause he was out of the army then. He just starts taking photos. Yeah. <laughs> Even though, <laughs> You weren't allowed to, but nobody wanted to tell him he couldn't. And I remember standing there going, feeling really embarrassed, going, oh, shit, sit down, because he was just walking everywhere. But I've got some great photos of the patching because of it. Um, well, that's yeah, yeah, it was funny. Uh, that's hard case. Oh, man, that's incredible. What an amazing story. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that about your dad. What's your dad's name? Is it uh, Brett, well, Brett Bestick. Yeah, yeah. Brett, um, Brett Bestick. So, uh, right. yeah, he had some um, – it was funny. When there's a legend of New Zealand SAS died recently, a guy called Ernie Stead. Um, you and I both served with his son, obviously, in, in one and so they are. But when Ernie died, um, there were some really nice sort of stories around Ernie Stead coming out. And I've, I've got a photo of one of Dad's patrols from Vietnam where Ernie was the patrol commander. And Dad had told the story where he said, you know, gone on his patrol as, as a trooper. He's a captain, but he's obviously as a trooper in the patrol under the command of Ernie Stead as a sergeant. And he said, Ernie just didn't really speak. And he said after the patrol, he'd said to Ernie, oh, you know, how did I, how did I go? He said, Ernie just kind of stared, stared at the ground for a while and then went, bit noisy. <laughs> Because and that was, and that was a bit, bit, bit noisy. <laughs> bit noisy. He said, "Yeah, you know, we did." He said that was a three-week patrol. He said we didn't speak for three weeks. You know, we didn't. You know, they carried phenomenal amounts of ammunition and water, and and you know, his whole feedback was a bit noisy. Bit noisy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just Classic. just the epitome, isn't it? Like you never, yeah. Like that's some of the differences with the unit, like. I found in Civvy Street, there's not the capacity for criticism in Civvy Street like there is in places like the unit, right? Like you only, we only ever talked about the bad stuff and what was wrong, and it was never done in a malicious way. It was yeah. just because we were only about improvement. But then I found moving to Civvy Street, you know, for a few years, particularly as a 
in medicine as a doctor, you know, I'm only ever giving negative feedback and people are getting really bummed out. Um, and it took, but it's to help them. To yeah. It, it, it takes a while to realize actually, uh, it's people probably work better off positive feedback, but you come from an environment where, you know, yeah. nothing's ever done well enough, right? It's yeah. always fault. And it's, it's not because we're, trying to cut each other down it's because it's that relentless pursuit of excellence and that can only come through looking for small gains and all elite teams like all blacks everyone that's yeah. what they do i read a great quote from um, george gregan the you know the wallaby captain he talked yeah, about tr- transition from wallabies to uh he's been a very very successful business owner yeah and someone once asked him what the biggest challenge was moving from the wallabies to uh, corporate world, which I think has mm. parallels to to what we've done, yeah. and he said, "Look, when I'm under the posts on a test match, I can speak to my players in a certain way because everyone gets what needs to be done. Mm. They're mission focused, but I can't talk to people like that in the corporate world." Yeah, gotcha. And I thought that there's some parallels there. Like we, you know, we would have a, you know, we would be good mates and banter and have the best laughs and but if if one of us does something that's off on a job doesn't matter if it was you to me or me to you yeah. you would you would call them up on it right mm. if uh we, in the debrief you didn't pull any punches at all yeah but that was never carried over ever yeah. because it was always given in a way that this is about the team being the best that it can be and that and our lives are on the line for it so we're not going to hold back right because because we're not just going oh gee i should i say something to joe i don't want to offend him but i really didn't like what he did right that that distort didn't cross your mind did it you would just and if you didn't agree with me you'd give it back to me and we'd have it out and yeah and then move on yeah yeah that's so interesting i love that you've mentioned that because yeah i've struggled with that too and it sounds like you have as well in this space the civilian world or real world whatever people want to call it these days i I remember distinctly getting into this mining sector stuff and i was told oh they're rough as guts you know hard and this and that and i had still was still fairly raw from the private sector still giving that straight feedback like what you just spoke about and receiving it and I gave feedback like that in terms of what they weren't doing very well and the work and I was a health and safety sort of advisor and stuff at that time. And uh, I got bailed up about it. I was like, you can't talk to people like I was like, what? <laughs> you, you just told me these people are rough and tough and all this sort of stuff. And I pulled them up and just run it straight, told them, you know, you can't do this. didn't swear or anything at them, but they got upset. And I was like, man, so you've had those experiences too by the sounds of things? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, one of the biggest areas of growth I feel like I've had is with um, instructing and mm. teaching because the way uh, it took me a long time to realize that the way I was teaching was not suited to the environment that I was now in, and um, that actually there's a huge amount of research into how people learn. So I remember I was doing a, a course on. Uh, how to be an instructor for uh, the College of Surgeons. And I was frustrated and pissed off for being there because I quite arrogantly felt like I shouldn't be there. I thought, I've done instructing in the Army. I've done lots of instructing courses. I applied for RPL. They didn't give it to me. So I was there with a bad attitude. And 
instead of coming with a good attitude to learn and think this is a chance to learn something new, I just sat there with a bad attitude and just made life difficult <laughs> for the instructor. Right? You were one of the people up a, in the tears yelling out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Like, you know, that's just the way I chose to, to deal with that situation. So, and luckily this lady that was giving it was just uh, giving it back to me. So, and I actually, that interaction actually, because she was such a good educator, mm. I think she saw me as a challenging student and so at one stage I said, well, I don't agree with what you're saying and gobbed <laughs> off, you know. Uh, and she said, oh, that's interesting to hear that, Bill. So what's your evidence then that your method results in the student actually learning better than any other method? <laughs> what did you say? And I'm like, well, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, that's how I want to be taught. Because, oh, so the way you want to be taught is the way that everybody wants to be taught? Well, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, it might surprise you to know that we're not all like you. And I thought, yeah, well, I guess that's – so it was a bit of revelation mm. for me. She was saying, you know, the evidence doesn't support – if you want adults to actually learn, that's not how they learn. They don't learn by didactic teaching. They want to be challenged and reflected and guided through this process, which I thought was all just a lot of airy-fairy kind of crap. But – I had to kind of actually think about, well, gee, well, maybe the way that I'm teaching, what if all this time I've been instructing has been a waste of my time and the student's mm. time? Be um, so instead of when I would teach, say, medical students, instead of I was very much, you know, if you walked in five minutes late to my lesson, I'd just say, don't bother sitting <laughs> down, get out, you're late. Yeah. You know, if someone's on a phone, I'd stop the whole thing. Are you on a phone? Cool, man. See you. <laughs> gone. Outside, don't ever come, yeah. you know, just – and then, and then instead, I changed and went, next time I had a group of students, I tried something different. I went, okay, so I'm not getting paid to teach you today and you're not getting paid to sit here. So there's no point in us wasting each other's time. As soon as you stop learning anything from me today, just leave. Wow. And if the classroom's empty, then I've either achieved the task or I've failed in the task. And if you want to get on your phone, get on your phone. I don't care because that will be instant feedback to me that I'm losing you. So if I look up and there's a sea of 40 people staring at their phone, then clearly I've lost How you. How did that go? How did that? Oh, uh, no one trusted me. <laughs> <laughs> but I started to think more and more about, okay, well, well, okay, I'm going to see this as a challenge. I'm going to see teaching and communicating as you know, it's easier to put a yeah. pack on your back, isn't it, and just yeah. go and train for something. That's actually quite easy to do. But things like communication and what we call non-technical mm. skills and leadership and, and your workplace behaviours, they're sort of soft skills. They're grey skills and um, they're much, much harder. And I think on a, a, for me in reflection, uh, so that transition to Civvy Street, yeah. even while I was serving, home life was much, much harder than work life. Home life, we're all pretty, like, yes, we're individuals, but we, we have the same mindset. We're actually selected. We are almost identical versions of each other. And we get along mm -hmm. amazingly well. We love each other's company. And I remember the first couple of deployments yeah. I came back from, <laughs> I've got to be careful how much I talk at a school here if there's wives <laughs> listening. But some of the boys, I remember saying uh, to my troop sergeant, oh, you know, should I send a message to all the wives, let them know, because we've now got to return to yeah. New Zealand Day. Because you know what it's like, 
for a lot of your listeners probably don't know that when, whenever we deployed, we never got a return date, right? It's very stressful for the families. No job I ever went on ever had a return date. Sometimes it was two weeks. Sometimes it was five months. But I never got a two-way ticket. I got a one-way ticket. And then somewhere along the line, you might yeah. start to inquire, hey, am I <laughs> going to be home soon? Or um, So I remember saying we got a return date and I said, oh, shit, you know, we will tell the wives. And he's going, no, 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 no. No, no, you can't tell the wives when we're coming home because some of the boys won't right. go straight home. It's like, what do you mean? He said, well, they'll just they'll return to country, but then they might spend another day or two just getting on the yeah. piss with each other and then they go home. And they don't want the wives or their families yeah. necessarily to know that they're back. And I was like, why would you do that? He said, because that's you what you need to do to dig. Yeah, yeah. That was the first time I deployed. And, yeah, it is, yeah. it's confronting, isn't it, because you – you're so invested in the environments that you're in. Uh, I don't know what it's like for you when you got back from, say, East Timor, but I remember every night I go to sleep, mm. I'm actually in the jungle. And I don't remember that I'm at home till I wake up. I, I wake up and it's you're a bit disorientated. You're like, what? I'm in a house? Yeah, that's oh, yeah. yeah. I'm back home. That, and that lasts quite a while. And then you do the next deployment and it's the same thing. You go to bed, you think you're in some hangar in Kuwait or something. And then, so there's, it's quite, uh, it's moving sands, isn't it? And your wife's become very independent. She has to be. She's had to raise kids without you. And, and now your role's a bit lost. You come back, you try to slot back in and it doesn't quite work. Uh, and it's, and it's difficult. So, so what do most of us do? Well, we just go to the environment where we are good. Yeah. We go back to work yeah. because yeah. work's, easy compared to home and then and you're not confronting the issues of what's ha- actually going on so i think coming back to some of that it's a bit like that with the with the teaching or things challenging yourself to do it in a different way is always harder and the technical skills like for me the clinical skills of putting in a cannula or or intubating or doing a, a technical skill which would be like say shooting or or repelling or something in the army you, you kid yourself that that's the hard bit, but actually that's the easy bit because the more you yep. – some people pick it up faster than others. I don't think anybody's actually necessarily more talented than any other human. Some people pick skills up faster than others, but we'll all learn it, right, given enough time. You could train a monkey to do my job as a anaesthetist if you had enough time, right? I mean, but the other stuff, the communicating, the teaching, the team environment – that's actually harder to measure whether you're doing a good job or not. But that's yeah, probably true. where the highest yield is. Wow. So, and so if you've covered and gone into some stuff that um, I'm definitely going to come back to and, and touch on because I love the pieces. I made a couple of notes here about the teaching, some of the self-discovery stuff, and we're still on that journey, I think, in many respects. I know I am anyway, and part of what you're sharing here is really raw and and beneficial for our listeners, and that's why um, you're one of the. Well, you were the first person that I reached out to because just your. And even though, so just a bit of a disclaimer. I haven't. Last time I would have seen you would have been 99 when you have received your um, beret and everything, and and that would have been the last time. Yeah. Um. So more yeah, than a couple so. of decades. Yeah. 
but I just, you know, the amount of respect that I have for you and the, the times that I've been able to reach out to you um, post when I was in Australia and stuff, and you've always been there. You've always been able to give some advice, whether it's through email and that sort of stuff or a brief conversation over the phone. It's really meant a lot to me anyway. And I knew that by having you as a guest on this podcast as part of this series would really be able to explain things in a way that people will just be able to understand. And so I've really felt that so far. And I just want to get into, because you talk about the preparing for something physically as easily and then we've got as easier and fairly easy compared to the more soft skills and those sorts of things, which I agree 100%. I'm just resonating with everything that you're mentioning so far. But I want to I want to come back and rewind a little bit and then we'll jump back forward again to these and transitioning from the unit and stuff. Um, and some of the stuff that you you touched on in particular, you know, it does take a while to, to readjust. Like when I got back home, you're still reaching to check to make sure sometimes in the middle of the night or if I need to wake up that my weapon's there but it's like I'm at home like I don't it's not here it's in the armory <laughs> I don't need to worry about that yeah I remember once uh, standing in the kitchen with my wife I just got back from somewhere and I <laughs> I spat on the floor <laughs> <laughs> and Melissa's going did you spit on the floor I'm like oh uh, sorry yep <laughs> Because you just, yeah, in the, yeah, it's a slightly, uh, it takes a while for your brain to catch up to where, you, where your body like, is, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. Well, I'm glad I never spat on the floor. I might have done that for my wife. <laughs> yeah, she was horrified. That's hard case. Hey, I want to ask, so how did you, how did you prepare physically and or mentally for selection? Like I know it started from the seven years of age, you were absorbing information, you were standing in the presence of those people, all these things that, that were happening. But when it came time, like I knew, I didn't know you, but I knew of Captain Bestick from the battalion that you were fit, um, capable. I then heard that because we weren't on the same selection. But what did you do? How did you prepare <clears throat> yourself physically and mentally to to undergo selection, still having, you know, some of the mysticism around selection at that time? I I did a lot of preparation for selection. So I um uh it's interesting hearing your story about and your podcast. And again, I didn't know a lot of your backstory either. Mm. It's been really fascinating for me to hear that. Mm. That your OC at the time was reluctant to release you. And yeah. you know, um when you put in that form, I think it was an AFNZ three from memory. Mm-hmm. It was you weren't allowed to be prevented from doing selection, were you? But but we that didn't mean you necessarily had the blessing of a unit. So I arrived at the battalion, and I've got to be honest, I was um, I didn't enjoy my first few months in the battalion at all. Right, and I didn't get along with the other officers very well initially. Uh, I'd been to Duntroon in Australia on exchange. Right. So when I came back, I faced this kind of quite strong resentment from the New Zealand officers that I was somehow a foreigner because right? I'd trained in Australia. Because I was sent on exchange from the New Zealand Army for four years to do officer training at Duntroon in, in uh, Canberra. And that's something our Army's done since Duntroon opened in 1911. <laughs> um, so we've always had Kiwis there. And, you know, it was hard to be selected to do that. Yeah. So you kind of think, oh, yeah, I've been selected. And then you come home and all of a sudden you're sort of, you're not embraced at all. Mm. So I faced – so I'm sent as an individual to the battalion. I don't know any of the other officers. Right. They all know each other. They've all done their officer training together. And I'm very much an outsider. I've got an Australian accent. 
I've never worn a New Zealand uniform because I've only ever been Australian uniform. Mm. I didn't know how things were done. Uh, so, and I had this image of the battalion from when I was a kid growing up watching the battalion. And I got to the battalion, and I've given a platoon, and I'm looking at the platoon, I'm saying, the platoon sergeant, where is everyone? <laughs> uh, that's it. It is everyone. 13? <laughs> 13 people, including me. Isn't there supposed to be 30? What is it? What? So, you know, and we would go out on, like, platoon testing, and a ha- I'd lose half the platoon to rugby <laughs> training. So I'm left with six people. <laughs> Trying to do a platoon ambush, going, well, hang on, are we training for war or for are we rugby. training for rugby? Like, what? So it just, it was just so frustrating for me that um, this battalion, which I had up on a pedestal in my mind, didn't meet my expectation yeah. of, of what it could be. And and I felt that the officers that I served with, I didn't have a lot of respect for them mm. at the time. Um, and I just felt there was a lack of discipline in the battalion and I felt that it just wasn't doing what it should be doing and I, so I thought right that's it I'm out of here I'm doing selection so within three months of arriving at the battalion I put my <laughs> 18th at three and I'm, I'm training for selection like I'm not speaking to anybody I'm getting up in the morning and training I'm going to work and uh, then I'm coming home and yeah. training again you know I was I wasn't married then living in a barracks and just training 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 and then the adjutant pulled me in and said you're not going to selection I said you can't stop me I know the rules <laughs> I'm glad you knew the rules. I didn't know the rules. Yeah. And he said, you're right. I can't stop you. He said, um, in the last 10 years on selection, not a single infantry officer has passed on the first attempt. <laughs> because, and he said, um, let me tell you, they won't, you might finish selection, but they won't take you because you're too uh, junior. Yeah. So you just have to go back again. And he said, and you know what else? The next CEO of the SAS is one of the current OCs. Is that right? So he's going to ask our CEO whether he should take you or not. And our CEO is going to go, no, he needs more time. So I said, you're pointless going. I can't stop you. Go for it. You're wasting oh, your time. Yeah. They won't take you. It doesn't work like that. You need to do a couple of years here. Do two years here. Get your time up and then, and then do selection. So I sort of put it off and then uh, I applied again. And I got told, we're still not going to let you go. We now want you to go to mortar platoon. So I was really pissed off about that. I went to mortar platoon. And actually had a, I started to get into the groove of the battalion a bit more. Uh, lost some of my bad attitude. And, and I actually really loved uh, my platoon and mortar platoon. I loved being in mortar platoon. Um, and that was part of the poor company, first, eh, at the time? Yeah. And it was, <laughs> you know, I was, I was fairly rigid. <laughs> In my thinking yeah. would be a nice way to put it. I'd like to think I'm a little more chilled out than I was back then, but I was pretty intense. And I remember arriving day one in Mortar Platoon. I've been watching Mortar Platoon for a couple of months while I was in the Rifle Platoon. And all I saw was these big fat blokes who didn't do much. And, uh, Very heavy things. and, uh, yeah. And, you know, you know, there were seven sergeants and, and a warrant officer. It was very NCO right. heavy. Uh, so I come in day one and I, uh, on the Friday afternoon, I came and said, right, I'm taking over on Monday. Just want to introduce myself and we're going to be doing PT, uh, physical training every day in more platoon from now on. And, uh, so eight o'clock turn up. And you PT had set this, right? You had set, yeah. That's what I said to him, right? So I turn up on Monday 
And this, there were 35 in the platoon there. So it was a reasonable yeah. size platoon. And out the front were six soldiers in PT gear. <laughs> and everyone else, all the sergeants were in their 7B, their, um, you know, their uniform of the day, their boots and camouflage uniform, sitting inside. <laughs> and this was a, a test, right? They were kind of like, you're not going to come here and tell us what to do. So I walk inside and and uh, I see all these sergeants sitting, and they all had a yeah. desk each, right? They're all, they're all sitting at a desk, and they're all just staring at me. And um, I said, oh, look, I've got to say, man, I'm really impressed that you guys want to do PT in boots. <laughs> I think that's awesome. I wouldn't have expected that because we're going to do a lot of running today. But I feel like I should go and put my boots on too, um, that you guys want to step up and lead by example. That's Awesome. <laughs> so, I love that you did that. Anyway, cut a long yeah. story short, they all had to do PT in their 7B and um, they were pissed <laughs> off. But we built a good platoon, right? We built a strong platoon and um, we didn't take any shit. We weeded out people who didn't want to be there and we got a strong unit and um, we did crazy stuff like beep test mm. and gas masks and uh, all sorts of stuff. And so I just – I really got into it. Like I had a fantastic mortar to IC um, and we we just mm-hmm. achieved good things. Um, so, yeah, I sort of got into it and then and then finally uh, – and then I really wanted to go to uh, yep. Recon Platoon. Um, I got offered a deployment to the Sinai and my CEO at the time said, tell you what, if you turn down that deployment to the Sinai, I'll give you Recon Platoon. Right. Said, oh, okay, um, all right. So I rang there because Wellington used right. to deploy us to headquarters. So I rang them and said, oh yeah, I'd, I, I'm going to knock back the deployment. And I'm like, oh, okay, because I yeah. desperately wanted the deployment. And then of course the CIA didn't give me recon platoon anyway. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I've en- I ended up going to do selection probably in my third yeah. year in the battalion. And even then, the CEO of SAS at the time had done a deal with my CEO to keep oh, me back right. for another year. So I did selection in 97, but they wouldn't let me do cycle till 99, uh, which is why you and I ended up on the same cycle. So, but again, like, you know, anybody that's been in the unit in whatever country Mm -hmm. overcomes barriers. And um, one of our OCs in the battalion at the time, Brian Hewson, who you might remember, who'd been a troop commander in New Zealand, say yes. He had terrible eyesight. I remember speaking to one of the mountain troop guys to say what was Brian like, and he said he was fantastic boss, but he <laughs> was blind. And he and he said, we're in the snow. He used to just have to grab someone's pack in front of him and follow it. Um, and he'd got someone else to sit his eye test for pre-selection. <laughs> Who dares wins, man? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think whatever those barriers are to prevent you, I mean, a lot of us have fought, have overcome things just to get yeah. to selection. And that's already selecting out the people that you want. We don't – and that I think that mindset that I don't care what the rules are. I know what the job that needs to be done. And if you – and that, you know, people sometimes ask me, well, what's selection about? I'd say it, it's about selecting a mindset. It's not someone that's fit. It's because on my selection course, uh, we had, I think, 19 finish – but only 11 mm. were selected. Yep. So there's a bunch of guys who have finished and get told, good job, mm. we're not taking you. 
it's not it's not about just being at the finish line it's about it's about how you finish and you know people you probably get this too i don't know if it's on in new zealand but there's a tv show called who dares wins um uh, where it takes celebrities and puts them through a I've heard about it in Australia. There, eh? it's in Australia at the moment. So there are a bunch of uh, British SBS mostly, um, yeah. and there's one or two uh, British SAS guys that run it. It's actually not a bad watch because it reminds me of some of the of the mm-hmm. of the life. But it's nothing. To, you know, I say to people at work, so that's not what selection's about at all. So you don't get yelled at on selection because you want someone who's going to select themselves. That's right. And so what I found about selection was you'd be set a task that was actually impossible to achieve if you blindly followed the rules. <laughs> but they don't tell you that. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is you're selecting people who know how to break rules. And if you bl- break the rules flagrantly and unthinkingly, then you get kicked off. Mm-hmm. But if you break the rules in a kind of considered way where you calculate when you take risk, when you walk on a road or when you don't, then you achieve the task. Yeah. If you blindly just, oh, well, I'll just do exactly what they tell me, you won't complete the task. Mm. So in actual fact, what they've done is they're carefully selecting a mindset that isn't a reckless mindset, but it knows when and how to break a rule. Yeah. And that's important because not only operationally, we can figure out, okay, maybe there's times here where I can break rules to achieve the task. But in my job, you know, if I'm looking after a patient, they might not fit within a protocol yeah. or a rule. So I've got to know, well, actually, this is a time where I've got to think around that. I've got to think asymmetrically. Now, where that that rule-breaking behavior needs strong leadership, and I think some of what we've seen and some of what I witnessed was where that those individuals can lose their way. Yeah about that rule to rule breaking it's a it's a someone had said to me once oh uh my mortar to i see had said to me i was hoping you would fail selection because <laughs> we want to keep you in the infantry because the sas doesn't need officers they lead themselves is that right and then i went up to the unit and thought it's the hardest leadership i ever did mm. because because the soldiers are so motivated, yeah. it's A, hard for you to keep up with everyone. It's not like you have to kick anyone's ass. Yeah. You're actually struggling to, to keep up with your soldiers. But how do you now lead this really strong-willed group of mm. humans who are who are better at the job than you, um, particularly when they're rule breakers by selection, and then you deploy into anarchistic environments, yeah. war zones where... There are no rules. There's no police. There's no one looking over your shoulder. You're being asked to do things that, that frankly, humans shouldn't be asked to do. Uh, how do you correlate that with still maintaining your moral compass? That requires leadership, not just from the officers particularly, but for, for everyone within that group. So I think that was, you know, if you're not careful – and you've got weak leadership, then then that that unit can lose its way. Hundred percent, man. I love that you shared that. That's um, yeah, that's really insightful. I I really appreciate those words because as you're mentioning that, although I never had the privilege to serve with you or serve under you as as a leader within the the New Zealand SAS or anything like that, I think of the leadership and I sort of touch on really good men um, 
good people that without the unit to echo what you've just shared, yeah, I, I agree 100%. It, it has the potential to lose its way without that leadership and having people, in this case, with you sharing, people like you that have been able to be there. So, man, thanks, Bill. Appreciate that. That's powerful stuff, um, really insightful. And I know that's transferable to, I think, any organization outside of the unit, right? Like you need that strong leadership. Otherwise, those that are maybe, albeit well-intended or good mindset, can lose their way with whatever that organization or business may be or might become. So, um, man, it's interesting. I wanted to ask you as well about selection. What's some of the funniest, or was it, it was the selection process itself for the unit everything that you thought uh, it would be? Like, did it, did it, was there anything that was unexpected? Was there anything that was, that stuck out to you that you thought, this is strange, or was it, was it everything that you thought it would be? Uh I loved it. It, um, it. The hardest part for me was um, the lack of food. Yeah. <laughs> because you've never trained for that. Yeah. Like I'd done survival exercises as an officer cadet and in the infantry, but nothing like that food deprivation. And I, I understand, uh, you know, you know better than me that the selections in the UK and Australia are not as food deprived mm. as in New Zealand. Yeah. But that that absolute food deprivation, man, that's another whole level of mental torture. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Because you've eaten so much in training, right? Yeah. Like you, you train hard, but you eat whatever you want. Yeah. So that that I found really hard. And and I had a moment on selection, and I, I think we all have this moment. We just have it on a different day. And I remember Pete Kelly, one of our um, CEOs, I think he gave it, I watched an interview he did, a documentary on selection and he said there's a point in selection where you want to quit you know one little little man or bird on your shoulders telling you to quit and the other one tells you to keep going uh and you'll either quit or you'll keep going Mm -hmm. and for everyone it happens on a different day and it really resonated with me because i think once once you've confronted that then you'll never quit Mm -hmm. you'll never quit it it doesn't come back. It only came to me once, but it came to me really early. Yeah, right. So, you know, you got to remember, I've been want, waiting for this moment my whole life. Everything I've ever done is prepare for selection. Mm. I would be doodling winged daggers in my book <laughs> at school. I'd be, you know, I went and did a parachute jump at 16, so I was ready to do parachute jumping. So here I am, I'm finally at selection, and uh, I've, I've got to hold myself back almost because I don't want to overdo it on day one. Yeah. And then... Day two, so day one, as you recall, was just that a whole lot of just yeah. physical stuff just to physically deplete you of any of your physical stores that are left. But the last meal you've had has been, you know, because you've started at 8 a.m., it's been before 8, and then by, you know, lunchtime you're feeling a bit peckish probably, <laughs> but there's no stop for lunch. Um, it's just the next one, the next one, the next activity. Uh, you know, what have we done then? We've done a running push-ups and then we've done the 12k yeah. march and then now there was a swim test which was brutal brutal eight lengths fully clothed and then treading water and then we've done the hounds and hares and you know that's about i'm told later it was about eight yeah, k's i think yeah. of uphill running yeah. and boots and webbing and, and i was shattered at the end of that day and then of course there's no dinner yeah <laughs> 
And then we were doing all that sort of Morse code, code stuff yeah. just to keep us awake. <laughs> and then we stood staring at a wall yep. for hours and hours and hours. And I think about 11 o'clock that night, they brought out soup. <laughs> and we got half a cup of watery oh, soup water. and a slice of bread. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it, right? And uh, and then we had to pour the rest of the soup down the drain. <laughs> and then all that night, we sort of we get sent to bed, which is, you know, just a wooden floor to sleep yeah. on and then be up all during the night. And um, and then the next morning, that was there's nothing like that first or the second morning of selection for breakfast. Is there? You've got if, if I can paint a picture, yeah, please do. Yeah, you've got that. Uh, I mean, this is probably how everyone thinks everyone gets fed in the army anyway. You've got a press, you know. You've got people standing behind the press, and in front of you is laid out all the food, baked beans and eggs, and and then the cooks. Or you help yourself to whatever you want. In this case, the badge guys are standing behind the press. They've got their sandy berets on, just in case you don't know who they are. And we're lined up with our plates. First guy reaches in with a teaspoon for the baked beans. And he counts out to make sure that there are three, three individual baked beans. And he puts that in the middle of your plate, like it's a degustation. And you kind of look up because... And you're waiting for the rest, and they're going, what are you looking at, boy? <laughs> oh, oh, thanks, stuff. Um, mm. Then you get to the egg station, and you get that one egg, and they make sure they cut all the white off it, so just the little yolk. <laughs> and then you get a sausage. And then you sit down, and you're staring at this Missing tiny plate. plate. With, with little food. Yeah, with, yeah, and then you're told someone barks out, eight, <laughs> and you eat. And then I looked across, the guy across from me, was covering the sausage in salt till it was white, and he quietly looked around and he slipped it in his pocket. Right. I thought, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> so I did the same, and you eat your three baked beans, try to make them last, <laughs> and your egg, and then you sit there while the staff just eat those huge feeds, and that's that's it. That's the food yeah. for the day, yeah. right, until there's watery soup at 11 o'clock <laughs> that night. So you're driven out on those trucks to those two you know, open country navigation. So big, steep, rolling countryside in South Auckland. And I don't know what you'd walk, maybe 10, 12 Ks that day, maybe something like that. Over very steep terrain, heavy pack, um, terrible weather, and you're working hard and you've got no energy. You, the day you depleted from the day before, you've got no energy in your stomach and then no one was allowed to talk. There's no talking. It's very silent. And, you walk up to a checkpoint with a badged guy standing there and he just gives you a good reference <laughs> and then you've got to navigate to the next yeah. checkpoint um, as fast as you can. And I remember I, I, I came to the first checkpoint and I was shattered. And you look up and there's a, there's a truck uh, parked at every checkpoint yeah. with a tailgate down that you're just invited <laughs> to get on. You can quit. No questions asked. And it's always that no one, there's no yelling. It's just what's your mm. checkpoint? And then I looked at this truck and I wanted, I felt like getting on yeah, it. Right. I just thought, I, I'm not going to do nine days. Mm. I can't. I can't even I, – I was really late getting to the very first checkpoint, like an hour yeah, late. Right. And I <laughs> thought, oh, man, this is I've trained for this all my life and I'm, I'm failing. And I nearly got on the truck and I thought, I'm just going to walk just around the corner and decide what I'm going to do. And I turned around the corner and I sat down for the longest time, which you don't yeah, have time to sit right. And there were people walking past me. You know, they're glancing at me. Then they obviously they don't talk to you. They know what you're doing. You're thinking about quitting. And I just had this crushing sense of defeat that I can't believe I, can't, I haven't even lasted two days. No. 
I'm, I'm about to quit and this is all I've ever wanted. Like, man, I'm a massive failure. And I sat there for the longest time and each minute that passed just made it worse because um, now I know I can't make the next checkpoint mm-hmm. either. But then something happened, right? This is that moment that you have on selection. And I thought, and this became a mantra for me for life. I thought, you know what? I'm thinking about the whole thing, the whole nine days. I need to just think about today. I thought, can I make nine days? No, definitely not. Definitely not. I can't. Can I make today? I don't think I can make today either, actually. But can I make the next checkpoint? Mm-hmm. And I thought about that and I looked at my map. I thought it's about six kilometers to the next checkpoint. Could I, phys- can I make it in time? No. Could I physically walk there? Doesn't feel like it right now. All right. Can I put one foot in front of the other? Well, I could definitely do that. And as long as I'm walking away from that truck and towards the checkpoint, then I'm going in the right direction. Yeah. So I just stood up. I knew I'd failed. I didn't, I thought, They'll just have to drag me off here. They'll probably come looking for me in hours later. It'll be dark and I'll still be mumbling, you know, shuffling towards the checkpoint. But at least I won't have quit. And I just stood up and I started putting one foot in front of the other and try to switch off my brain to the whole task and focus on just what was directly in front of my own face. And and soon enough, I got my second wind and then I arrived at the next checkpoint way behind time. But now it's like, right, I'm going to make it up, man. I'm going to do this. And I felt really internally guilty about quitting, but it was an internal battle that I had mm. to have with myself. Yeah. And I think we, we all have a point there. And I knew from that point on, I wasn't going to quit selection, but it had to happen. And then med school, yeah. later in life, uh, I failed my primary exams to become an anaesthetist twice. And I did the same thing. I, I went through this process of self-doubt and guilt and failure. And I just had to stop and think, okay, I've just got to stop thinking about the whole exam or the whole process and I've just got to do today or the next hour or the next question. Um, and if I just focus on the task in front of me and as long as I'm moving in the right direction, then I'm doing what awesome. needs to be done. And so often you would have seen it on selection. We've all seen it. People come back from selection and say they were kicked off selection. <laughs> I didn't see anyone kicked off selection. Yeah, yeah. I saw everyone quitting. They thought they were being kicked off. But they weren't, actually. The staff didn't say, you, you're gone. I don't think, unless like there was the run or there was very few tasks. But they would always give you the impression you were failing. I remember one of the staff saying to me at one of the checkpoints, I was started the third day, I think, because the time is cumulative over those three days. And he said, are you behind time or ahead of time, Bestic? I said, I'm behind time, staff, way behind. He goes, what are you going to do about it? I said, make it up. He said, make sure you do. Mm-hmm. He's not supposed mm-hmm. to talk to me. But um, I think those timings were done deliberately so that on day one and two, almost nobody reached yeah. the times so that they finished each day feeling like they yeah. were failing. Defeated, failing, yeah. Yeah, and it was what you're doing is you're selecting people that, because most of the time people quit without trying. And I realized that who dares wins is actually you get another layer of understanding of what that's about. Yeah. You know, for me, the Commando comic version was 
you know, this dude parachuting behind enemy lines and <laughs> killing people with his bayonet and sack full of grenades. That's who dares wins. But that wasn't who dares wins at all. Mm. Um, you know, I remember one of the tasks they did, they stood us up. I don't know if they did this on your selection. They woke us up at night. It was pissing rain. And we were standing on a wharf in, in Hobsonville overlooking the water. And you could just see into the water. It was like choppy waves and white caps. It was really stormy night. Right. And raining. And the directing staff, we each carried a radio, and he told one of us, give me a radio. And you could just hear him in the wind saying, safety boat, safety boat. This is directing staff, over. <laughs> and all of us are standing in the rain looking at this water going, safety boat? <laughs> no. Why would there one. be a safety boat? <laughs> We're not getting in the water, are we? So he spent like half an hour like he was trying to raise them on the radio. Yeah. And then, he, and then nothing happened. Thought, Shit, that was weird. Then the next night he did the same thing. <laughs> and I was there thinking, and then you could see in the distance this little light, like a red light bobbing <laughs> up and down, like like a kilometre offshore or Is something. Is that the boat? <laughs> yeah, and then, and then he's on the radio. Because it wasn't like he was doing it for show. We can only just hear what he was yeah. saying. And then it was like it was like he got hold of them. And then he turned around and goes, right, on go, stripped down, naked, everyone. You are to swim out to that red light, <laughs> give your name and number, and swim back and get dressed. And I was thinking, there's no way they're going to make us do this. Like, people are going to drown. <laughs> and there were people around me going, oh, shit, I'm not doing that, like whispering. And I was going, shit, I think I'm just going to hang at the back here. because, Or if we do get in the water, like, I wouldn't back myself to swim out there, not in the freezing cold. So we're standing there naked, fucking shivering. And he gets us up to the wharf, and then someone puts a hand up, and he goes, what? He goes, staff, I don't want to do it. He goes, all right, move off to the side. Anyone else want to quit? And there were two or three that, yeah. that put their hand up. And then he yelled out, right, get changed. I'm like, what? And we all had to get changed. And then he stood at the three that had quit and said, you didn't even try. You didn't even try. <laughs> and I thought... It seemed really harsh to me because what's the balance between thinking, well, I'm going to die. I can't <laughs> swim, so I'm going to die. But it was more about that same concept that you quit before uh, you've actually tried. And frequently we do that in life before we've actually tried. And even if you fail an exam, people say to me, oh, I didn't get to med school because I failed the exam. I go, sure, how many times mm. did you try? Oh, once. Well, then you, then you didn't, you yeah. didn't fail. You quit because you could have kept sitting. I mean, you could have sat it five or six times if you really wanted to. Um, each time you fail it, you've got to think, okay, what am I doing wrong here? Where did I go wrong, and how do I make it better? So that that moment on selection became a really important life lesson for me. And I think selection. I came away from selection. I'd learned on selection. I didn't think it was going to be a learning activity. I remember small things like they would say, right, clean your, clean your rifle. You know, you'd arrive at the checkpoint yeah. and you're waiting for other people to come in. So you're just sitting on your own and they'd say, clean your weapon. And I remember like I'd started, I'd strip my weapon down. I'm starting to clean it like you do in the infantry. And then say, uh, right, reassemble your weapon, stand out weapons inspection. And you'd think you'd had like four <laughs> minutes. Weapon's filthy, right? And they'd, I remember one of the directing staff, he looked down the barrel of my weapon and he said, you've got dirt in your barrel of your weapon. Why? 
because I didn't have time to clean it stuff. He went, you always pull the barrel through first. That's the first thing you do. Now give me push-ups. Yeah, don't take your pack off. Leave your pack on, boy. Didn't tell you to take that off. So I think, and already I thought, mm. well, I've never actually been taught that. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. You do the most important thing first. Mm. But in infantry, I was never taught that. And I think, wow, I'm already learning how to be a better soldier just in the presence of these guys who are so focused on what needs to be done because they're not trying to polish their boots and starch the uniform. They're focused on what's actually important. So I think selection for me, it was it was mm. awesome because I was surrounded by these, you know, rock stars in my mind, but I was getting a sense of what they were like. And yes, they were hard, but they weren't – they were hard for a reason. They punished you because they wanted you to learn something, yeah. not because they were being sadistic. Um, and I was learning about rules and when to break rules and I was learning about myself Um and if I'm honest with myself, every time someone quit, I felt better. Yep, uh, I can relate. <laughs> you know, that made me stronger. Yeah. <laughs> we, had a, we had a strong selection. So from day five or six on, yeah, virtually no one quit, which made it quite hard. That's strong, because right? you, you said, what, 19 finished? We did because uh, that year was the Colours Parade where we, you know, about once a generation, mm. the battalion gets its okay. colours, which, are, you know, they're a bit like a flag, um, as you know, and they become the sort of soul of the unit. And each, about once a generation of soldiers, they'll replace the colours or every 100 years. And so this was a big deal for the battalion. So we spent about three or four months that year, that was 97, just doing drill. So we didn't go to the field. We did drill all day. So a lot of us used that time to train for selection because we could put on weight. We could, and we had we weren't going to the field doing exercises where you'd lose weight and decondition. So it was mostly infantry that went on that selection, mostly one owners that are, lots of recon, really strong crew, really strong mm. crew. So, so we did have a pretty good, good finish rate. I mean, there were other times I felt like quitting for sure, especially on the sand dunes. Um, but each time I felt like quitting, I, I, I realized I'd got myself into that mindset of looking too yeah. far ahead. So it's about having a goal in the distance, but when, it, when the going gets tough, you pull back and you pull back and you pull back and you keep pulling back until the the bite that you're taking is tiny. And then that, that bite can get a little bit bigger. And we've all done those walks where you're under a pack, you're suffering usually at night. Um, and you just, you're, you're wrecked, right? And you don't want to let your mates down, but you're thinking, man, I, I know how far we've got to walk and I don't know that I can do it. So then you pull it back and pull it back and start, stop overthinking it, switch off a little bit, focus on what's in front of you. And that's a really useful life yeah. mindset, I think. Man, that's beautiful, man. That's powerful. I really, I was making some notes of that as you were speaking and um, I love those points. I think our audience will really take a lot away just from those bits and more to come. But breaking it down, pulling it back, um, seeing it the bigger picture, I remember... Um, just sharing a moment here on, on my selection. I won't name the guys, but there were a couple of guys, good friends from Battalion. And just as you were mentioning, when you went around the corner and just sat down for a bit and we're sitting there, I was coming up <clears throat> to the next checkpoint, which was just around the corner. The guys, good friends from Battalion that were there, they were sitting on the side of the hill, must have been having that moment for them. And I was walking along <clears throat> and I saw them and I knew we weren't supposed to talk, but I did, I was like, hey, how you fellas, all right? 
And they're like, they both sat there and one of them said, oh, we're just thinking about quitting. And in an instant, when they said that to me, I was like, okay, see you later, bro. And then I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just carried on because I was like, yeah, yeah, I was strength, like man, right? I, you know, to your point, I didn't want to be drawn into that moment or be or, or have that sort of hit me, happen or hit me at that time. And it was during the open country Navex phase as well. So, yeah, man, just some some really awesome memories. And I love what you shared uh, that you loved it as well. That it was awesome. I, I think so too. Were there any uh, jokesters, pranksters on yours uh, on your uh, selection, guys? You know how they come in and go. Who's got a joke? Did you ever have any of that? And did you have any pranksters on your course? Oh, you mean like directing staff? Yeah, either directing staff or or guys. Because uh, I remember one situation we had directing staff, and it was during that Morse code phase at, at the end of day one. <clears throat> and I, I'm not sure if because he's in now. I, I'm not sure if he's still serving Jack, but you'll know you'll know who he is. Jack and surname starts with K. So um, he was he was a bit of a funny follower in battalion, but we were on there. We had finished that day one. We're doing some Morse code stuff. One of the DS says, who's got a joke? And he must have heard that Jack was quite funny. And then he called him up and Jack was a bit reluctant, but he stood up and then he says, ask me if I'm a, he goes, oh, ask me if I'm a policeman. And the staff looks at him like, what? (laughs) And he goes, oh, ask me if I'm a policeman staff. And he goes, are you a policeman? Jack goes, nah, cracked up and said, I just lost it. I was sitting there and I was like cracking up. I was like, man, we're going to get smashed because of that. But it was funny. And um, we didn't get we didn't get smashed though. So it was it was really – did you have any of those guys on your – Yeah, we um, – I remember once, it was actually on uh, Cycle. There was all those – I think if you haven't been in that environment, like it's – I mean, the directing staff are God, aren't they? Yeah. Like you don't yeah. – <laughs> You don't want to raise any attention to yourself. You don't want to be caught whispering. Uh, you just want to stay in the background. And as the numbers dwindle, that becomes harder and harder. You don't want to make a mistake. And, um, yeah, the staff are always deadly serious. And they're yep. just, you know, and we were given a, we were told, right, we, you know, on a map exercise, right, you got to work out where your RV is going to be or something, right? So we're doing a, everyone's quiet with their pens and pencils, coming up with something, whatever we're tasked to do. And um, I'll mention these guys' names because they're, they're out of the unit yeah. now. But um, Aaron Pahati <laughs> and Simon Dunn, right? Two real characters on our yeah. on our cycle. And, of course, everyone's just referred to on selection by your number, yeah. but on cycle, just your surname. Yeah. So Aaron is, uh, is, must have finished a task and he looks up. And the directing staff, who was pretty staunch at the time, AJ became yeah. the RSM. He stares at uh, Pahatu and he says to Aaron, are you done? And Aaron looks at him really quizzically <laughs> and goes, no, I'm Pahatu stuff. <laughs> Wait, was Simon there? Was, yeah, was there? Yeah. <laughs> so, and of course... The staff is just, he's, he's confused because yeah. he's just like, <laughs> and then, and Aaron's really confused because he doesn't know what's going on. And we're just trying not to laugh because we can see what's happening. And Aaron's trying not to upset the staff who's getting quite angry. And then, and the staff looks at um, Bahatu again. He goes, I said, are you done? <laughs> he goes, 
I'm Pahat <laughs> Tustar. And it happened again. And then he's going, I know who you are. I asked, are you done? And he's like, oh, I'm, and Aaron's looking at us, looking around because he doesn't know what's going on. I, I, I'm, I'm Pahat too. Just, just, and we're just, and then we're kind of sniggering and then the staff's getting angry and angrier that he just thinks someone's yeah, taking yeah. the piss out of him. And, and it just got worse and worse and worse, you know? And then, and then eventually I think Simon Dunn put up his hand. He goes, I'm done staff. He goes, I didn't ask if you're done. I asked if you're done. He goes, oh, but I'm, I'm not done. He goes, then keep going. I, I finished. I just asked you if you're finished. And it just went. Oh, no. um, so AJ was being serious then, right? With this question. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there was plenty of times yeah, that he yeah. wasn't. Um, AJ certainly, there was, there was good yeah. humor there for sure. That's but um, <laughs> oh, often it was just, it was just under this cloak yeah, of fear. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Fear and uncertainty. Like, oh, what the hell do I Yeah, I... that's it. It's it with with severe yeah. punishment, right? If you laughed at the wrong time, or uh, that's a cracker. You know. Oh, that's awesome! That's gold, man. There was, and there was no sort of. I remember a lot of the times you would think that the task they were asking you to do was was a joke, mm. but you ended up doing it. Like, and I, I think some of that was not bravado. It's that what I realised when we went to the unit in the late nineties. There is that our instructors had been there 15 mm. or 20 years and they you become very isolated mm. in the unit don't you like your name gets taken off the electoral roll your car gets mm. taken off a public register you stop wearing uniform when you go to work you're taken off the army database you never mm. tell anyone what you're doing or who you're serving with you become totally disconnected to not only the rest of the army but yeah. friends who are not in the unit because mm. you've got nothing to talk about. Um, yeah, you can't yeah. talk to them about what you do. They feel awkward asking you. So you become very, very, very insular. Um, I remember I, was, I used to parachute a lot at the local yeah, civilian yeah. parachute club, and someone asked me there once, oh, Bill, so you're in the Army. You must be in the SAS, because the SAS was in Auckland. And you learned to mm. tell all these half-truths, didn't you? I'd say, oh, look. Uh, I'm actually in the unit, but I'm in a support role. I'm like a staff officer. I've yeah. got nothing to do with the, the boys. I just sort of do the administration and yeah. it's all a bit dull, really. Um, and that mm. sort of kills off the conversation. It's better than yeah, yeah. making something up. You've got to give a truth that's yeah. halfway there, you know. Um, but I think the result of that is you become mm. – you're in a time warp. And I think what was funny is the instructors were clearly – still behaving like they were in the 70s or 80s. You know, they would bat the female medic on the bum when she walked past and you'd be like, you can't, yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't do that anymore. Um, and, uh, and from a safety perspective, they were like that. I remember when we did swarm roping, you know, we would swarm down, say, an elevator shaft on the lift cables for when you're on the counter-terrorist team. And we'd go to a building and, at night in the city and uh, they teach us right oh you you basically got to jump out into the middle of this lift well and grab a hold of these cables and slide down them and you, you're watching them thinking <laughs> you're looking for the safety rope and it and there isn't one and you think oh okay and you can't yeah, lean yeah. out from the floor and grab those cables yeah. you've got to lunge into the center of the lift well uh, and then you Instead of having a lift like five feet below, they'll put it 10 stories below. <laughs> and you're thinking, 
why would you do that? Like if you miss those cables, you're yeah. probably going to die. And yeah, I think it, yeah. it was just, that's just the way they thought. They just didn't think about safety. And then, and you know, you'd have one go at it. Then they'll turn all the lights <laughs> off. You'd put on your respirator, your body armor, your weapons. And now you've got to lunge into the darkness <laughs> and grab these cables and slide 10 stories down and then run back up the stairs and think, <laughs> what, what are we doing? This is terrifying. And it was so much of the training that I found, you know, I did a rappelling instructor's course and the mountain troop guys ran that on the, from the top of those buildings in uh, downtown Auckland. And uh, I remember Kerry Ruru, the mountain troop sergeant, was running it. And, mm. you know, I'm not great with heights. Yeah. I, I love parachuting, but I, I get pretty terrified yeah. if I'm standing on the edge of a cliff or something. And... Um, so I'm on the top of this building feeling very uncomfortable already. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm as, in, mm. as in the middle of the roof as I can get. <laughs> <laughs> and Kerry's just wandering back and forward talking to us, but right on the edge of right. the building, not roped in or anything, and facing us. And I didn't hear anything he said because I'm just terrified <laughs> that he's about to slip off the building. Um, and then at one stage he goes, oh, uh, oh, Bestic, yeah, I've got a good one for you. And he he walks me around the edge of the building, uh, not roped in. There's just a tiny little ledge and he just disappears around the corner of the building. I'm like up against the glass <laughs> trying to looking down over 10 or 20 stories to the ground straight below, you know, and I get around the corner and Kerry's going, what are you doing? Come on, come on, hurry up. <laughs> and then I, I'm terrified and I get up to the center where he is and he goes, now I want you to try to set up a rope here to repel off, you know, from this concrete post uh part of the building and i'm thinking i said well how am i supposed to get the rope around that giant pillar when it's and he goes yeah that's it's that's the challenge. challenge all right and then he wanders off so now i've got to somehow drag all that roping and heart and carabiners and everything to this point on the building you're not roped yeah. in at all you're carrying equipment there's a tiny little ledge to, set an anchor. to set an anchor to repel off <laughs> and then you have got to do a sit-off. You know, you're sitting and you've got to jump out. Yeah. And it, oh. And uh, it wasn't done in a way, it was unsafe. There's no question of that. But it wasn't yeah. done in a way, it was just, I realized after a while they just didn't think about safety. Mm. It just wasn't in their mindset. And I'm surprised we didn't injure more people in our training. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> funny looking back yeah man far out well that answers one of the questions in terms of anything that caught you by surprise <laughs> yeah definitely that was probably the the biggest component was um yeah that that safety and I, I suppose as an officer when i've been involved in planning training you're you're thinking about safety and yeah um and this just seemed to be the it wasn't it was reckless there yeah. was just this i don't know just the you're, they're comfortable with, with risk yeah. in a way that that we hadn't been, and yeah, true. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I guess, yeah, at that time, I mean, health and safety these days, you can't go anywhere without coming across or impact or being impacted by some sort of health and safety, whether that's legislation or a rule or whatever. But and that's a really good point that that triggers some memories and stuff as well around, not like you said, not reckless, just um, I guess a different view and different mindset around what was happening at the time and what was required which is really interesting i think what it did is it put the emphasis the responsibility on ourselves so yeah, that's true you recall when we did our um training for you know what 
we call black roll training mm. for the counter-terrorist team and, we, and we're doing those first few days in the killing house. Mm. I remember being surprised that we were just carried loaded weapons all the time, yeah. that we were responsible for our weapon and unloading and loading yeah. it. There was not that infantry style of everyone line up and everything get checked. Yeah. Yeah. And we were shooting across each other. Yeah. You know, if you had a stoppage and you dropped to your knee, there'd be live rounds going over the top of your head. Correct. And being a little bit confronted by how we were just sort of let go from that regard. But you immediately took responsibility for your weapon and your safety. Yeah. Whereas in the infantry, you just, I guess in some ways, subconsciously subverted that safety to someone else. And I guess you would have seen it too in mining sites. It's whether you sub, uh, delegate that safety to a work health and safety yeah. person or whether you actually take responsibility for, for yourself. And the more you drive it from above the less responsibility people yeah, take yeah that's right so it's, it's finding that balance of you don't want a young 17 year old falling off a roof because an apprentice and becoming a paraplegic and i see lots of those in the hospital yeah. um and i get angry when i see a young apprentice that's paraplegic from a work site because i think you know that's not fair like a a bloke that's 50, if he wants to walk around on a yeah. roof not roped in, he's probably got balance skills and risk from a lifetime of doing it that a young young fella does yeah. not have. So I, I'm, I want safety mechanisms in place so when people like my sons go to mm. workplaces. So it's finding that balance between top-down safety and taking responsibility, and, and not just safety, but in all sorts yeah. of things, right? Getting people to take responsibility for their yeah. behaviour. And I think the unit gave us that very early in a very young age. The culture was such that you're responsible for your weapon and its safety um, and everything else that you do here. There was a lot of emphasis on personal responsibility for your behaviour. There was no one's fault. When you went out on patrol and, you know, a piece of equipment was missing, someone didn't check that you took it. Or I remember like even once watching the guy, I'd assigned someone to carry a machine gun and without me asking, they checked every round and every piece of link on the entire belt so they didn't get a stoppage like that's personal responsibility you allocate someone to be the signaler they go right i'm going to go and draw the radio i'm going to refresh myself on it i'm going to get the sig out of bed at 2am and, and we're going to do some signals training and i'd be wanting to go home and go to bed thinking geez these guys are still up still checking all their gear because they want to make sure it yeah. works for the patrol and that's i mean man how do you create a culture like that if you can get you can create a culture like that. You can do so much. And certainly Selection and Cycle taught me that none of us were particularly mm. gifted at anything, I don't think. Some of us were better at some skills than others. Some of us were better shooters or, yep. or fitter. Or, but we all yeah. struggled to learn skills we hadn't done, demolitions or stuff yep. we'd never done before. But we applied ourselves. We had a really high work ethic. We supported yep. each other. And we took the job seriously. We're like, right, I need to learn this because one day I'm going to be tasked to do it. Um, and I've often thought afterwards, man, how do you engender a, a culture like that? How do you – we, we were yeah. subsumed into it. It was already That's there. Right. It existed, a bit like an all-black culture. But how do you start that from yeah. scratch in a it, workplace? Man, it's, I love how you've mentioned that because that's a piece that I've always struggled since getting out of – the unit or since leaving the defense force in general, that culture, that environment, everything that you just described for me anyway, epitomized for me what, why I joined, why I wanted to be there and, and um, how I felt, how it made me feel. 
in that unit and I've not you know I've how great would it be to be able to take that and apply that that model to whatever business you're doing whether it's a doctor setting whether it's a business whether it's whatever it would be mm. amazing um so yeah I'm glad that you touched on mm. that and just that again another point that you touched on that ownership that extra I guess that taking ownership of those things yeah really stands out to me there's probably one time that I remember on the black roll stuff because there was a time they would let us practice on our cycle drawing your pistol with no rounds and stuff in it but having your teammate across from you and I remember doing this drill with um, Aaron mm. Aaron Pohatu but the only time that we had our weapons checked and it was the, probably the first couple of times by AJ and some of the other guys was whenever before we did that drill they would we'd have to unload it clear it and then show them that inspect and go yeah clear and then they would let us go out and do that drill then after that time after a couple of times we, it was left up to us to make sure that because we're going from the kill house to then doing dry drills kill house dry drills you're taking um your ammunition and stuff in and out of your your weapon and that loading unloading action all that sort of stuff man you have to be making sure that you're taking ownership of that and looking out for each other and that just that level of trust um, really resonated with me. It's like, man, I'm I'm really being trusted here. I'm going to do everything like you, like the guys that you're talking about. Still working on the radio, still working with whatever else I need to do with the whip and checking mm. every link and every round and all that sort of stuff. Um, it would be so great to emulate that or to create that environment in other areas. Ah, yeah, a lot of stuff there you touched on. Hey, I want to get into. Um, you've talked about. And you sort of touched on why with your with your doctoring, and I never say this word right, anaesthetist. That'll do. Anaesthetist. So with that, that's extra study, right? That's not just your normal doctor yeah. study. Like that's more. What's the? Yeah, it's poorly understood. Um, but essentially, an anaesthetist, or what the Americans will call an anesthesiologist, yeah. is a is a doctor, so you've done your medical school and you've done two or three years working in the hospital as a junior doctor. Right. And your your, normal doctor is six years study by itself anyway, right? Generally, it it all varies a bit. Some schools are four years, postgraduate, some are six or seven. So it varies, but uh, you all come out with the same qualification essentially. Uh, So two or three years junior doctor and then you can apply for a specialty program, whether it be a surgeon, maybe you want to be a cardiologist or or any of those sort of specialties, and um, an anaesthetist is one of those specialties. So it's it's then once you enter that training program, it's five more years of full-time training and study and exams uh, to learn to be an anaesthetist. So, you know, your primary job is essentially taking people that are awake and conscious, making them unconscious, take away their ability to breathe and take it over yourself. But it's also all the other physiological aspects that occur. So while you think about it, even in an elective surgery, when the surgeon is performing surgery, that's like the patient bleeding and undergoing trauma. Right. Um, So you're dealing with the blood loss as it happens and replacing blood if you need to. You're dealing with the heart rate, the blood pressure, the oxygen levels, and all the physiology derangement that's happening throughout that process. Uh, and then waking that person up safely and being responsible for their pain afterwards. Yep. And across a huge range of environments, might be a child, pregnant woman, neurosurgery, trauma. So it's quite a lot to learn, but that's kind of um, 
you know, what drew me to that specialty, I didn't know much about it, was mm. whenever I was involved as a junior doctor with cardiac arrest or patients that were, uh, you know, dying or up on a ward or whatever, if an anaesthetist turned up, they were just like Jedis. Mm. They just, everyone was calmer in their presence. Yeah, right. They were always calm. They always seemed to know what to do. They were very confident. And they just had this broad range of skills. Like as a doctor, you would chart a medication, but a nurse would give it. They would they would take the glass ampule, crack it, draw it up, and give it to the patient. They could put cannulas and lines in that no one else could. They could intubate. They would take the patient to theater. They knew the whole hospital system backwards. And every hospital I went to, if an anesthetist, it was a bit like, again, that mystical quality yeah. again. Um, so I started thinking, well, who are these people and what do they do and how come they seem to know what they're doing? <laughs> Uh, so that sort of got me interested in what it was all about. So that, that's what drove me down that pathway. But it is, yeah, it's not well understood yeah. what, what we actually do because patients never see what we do because you meet your anesthetist and then you wake up at the end. <laughs> and you think, I've had patients say to me, uh, so where do you go when I'm asleep? <laughs> what do you say to that? I've, I usually say, oh, I usually go to the shops <laughs> or get the car fixed or something. Um or there's this general sense that that we must do some careful calculation with a slide ruler or something and that we, with mortar and pestle, we, we come up with some combination of drugs that we put into a single syringe and then we inject it and then that's our job done. <laughs> so I sometimes say to people, well, if, you were, if someone was cutting your appendix out, what stops you waking up mm. when they put a knife in your belly? Um, clearly... Uh, I must have a role to keep you asleep, <laughs> and then wake you up at the end. I've had patients. I've had patients say, "How long's the anaesthetic?" I say, "Well, hopefully, a little bit longer than the surgery, because <laughs> if it's you're shorter not, than the surgery, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to be happy." <laughs> so, and again, it's a bit like um, you. The training is so long that you you can't help but develop good clinical skills you, it's an apprenticeship so the reason that anesthetists can put in cannulas or drips that other people can't is because we do thousands and thousands of them it's mm-hmm. not because we're gifted at it or or particularly any better than anyone else we just do more of it right uh it's a bit like you know the shooting in the unit mm-hmm. i mean most guys are good shots in the unit because we've got access to ranges and time yep. good instructors and an unlimited supply of ammunition mm-hmm. i remember on our bodyguard course the truck pulling up and we pulled off 10,000 rounds of 9mm and fired it within an hour, 20 of us. And you think, 10,000 rounds of 9mm? Like a, a battalion wouldn't get that for a decade, <laughs> not 9mm. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't that we were gifted shots. We, yeah. we just got a lot of, a lot of training. And it's a bit like that. There, there's a lot of training. And if you're not careful, you can get a bit full of yourself that you think, well, check me out. I can do this skill mm-hmm. that these other people can't. It's actually not about that. It's just it's the technical skill will come. Yeah. You could, a monkey could do that if you gave them enough time. Mm. What's to me, what's more important is now I'm thinking more about, okay, well actually like what we said at the start, the hard stuff is how well do I communicate when I get called into the resuscitation room and a busy <clears throat> hospital with a complex trauma, mm. how well do I assimilate to the team and figure out what's going on and communicate the needs? Do I team lead it? Do I follow how do I find my role and, and how do I do that effectively? That's actually, to me now, 
vastly more interesting dynamic than the than the technical skill because that's actually harder to do. And each time you go is going to be different. Yeah, true. Because if you rock up and everyone knows each other and we all get along, that's actually easy. That's not really yeah. a challenge. So now when I turn up, if someone's being really obstructive or difficult or being kind of a dick, instead of being frustrated by that, you'll go, okay, this is a this is a communication challenge. How do I get this person on board? On board? Yeah. Maybe I task them to do something else to get rid of them or maybe I bring them on board. Do I take them on this journey? Mm. So a bit like we talked about earlier with this transitioning phase, I learn I learned most of, of anything when I do yeah. it wrong, when I when I do it badly. We don't like making errors, but I know when I make a, a yeah. error, that's got the highest yield. And when I worked on a rescue helicopter, so we have our rescue helicopters yeah. in Sydney uh, that have a pilot, a crewman, a paramedic, yep. and a doctor. So a crew of four. Uh, and uh, I'll digress for a second and kind of – No, no, please do. Funny. Funny story about that, but I when we do our helicopter training, it's about five or six weeks of, of learning how to work in around the helicopter. Right. You're already a qualified doctor and mostly qualified anaesthetist at that time. But now they're training you as a doctor to work in a helicopter, and we had a pretty um, intense helicopter crewman that was running the training. And I don't want to, you know, he's asking, have any of you ever been around helicopters? I'm not going to tell him that yeah. I've been in the army, that I've repelled out of or parachuted out of helicopters oh, or, you know, we live yeah. in helicopters. <laughs> and he, by, by necessity, is going through a nauseating detail that, you know, this is how you use the door. <laughs> and my job is to stop doctors walking into the tail rider. It was all uh, really condescending. Yeah. Anyway, we put up with all this. Uh, and, you know, the winching out of the helicopter, I think, is a big deal, but you're like, you're tied on the whole time. Like, how's this even yeah. a big deal? It's not like yeah. swarm hoping. Uh, but, you know, you, you go along with it. And in my very first shift, I was allocated to this right. crewman. And he said, he pulls me aside before and he goes, right, we're going for the 8 o'clock briefing. Just keep your mouth shut. Do what I say. Don't make a dick of yourself. It's like, okay. <laughs> so we walk into the crew room. Immediately, I hear from one of the pilots, Bill. And it's one of the Blackhawk right. pilots from yeah, yeah. East Timor. Uh, and he starts telling all the boys a story about how we've been in a Blackhawk yeah. and getting shot at and and guys are shooting out the side of it. And then the other blokes I played rugby with when I was at Duntroon, the, the crewman's an ex-grunt from, you know, 5'7 or something. And he goes, oh, were you in the infantry? Yeah, yeah. And we, there's this massive, like, big powwow and the poor old crewman's there going, can we start the brief? <laughs> and uh, we're going, oh, sorry, 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 catch up after, catch up after. And Because the boys are going, you're a doctor? Oh, my God, that's terrible. Like, what does that say about medical school? I said, yeah, I know, I know. Um, so we sit down and he leans across me at the start and he goes, you didn't tell me you were in the army before. I thought you didn't ask. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so it's kind of funny. But the um, so one of the jobs I remember doing uh, on scene, we get helicoptered to a scene. This guy's terrible injuries mm-hmm. being um, – on a motorbike, overtaking a, a vehicle, and the, as he overtook the car, the driver got a fright uh, that he roared past, and she she jigged the steering wheel, knocked him off. So he's now tumbling along the road at 100, 120 k's an hour, and then gets hit head on by a car coming the other way. So amazing this guy's even still alive. But anyway, we, we fly in. I've got my good mate um, 
who's an ex-Black Hawk pilot, awesome pilot, um, and they put these helicopters in some incredibly tight places, mm-hmm. often with night vision. Uh, this is a daytime job, but he finds a patch of grass to land in. It was out sort of in a fairly rural area, dumps the chopper down, and we get to scene. This patient's barely alive. There's a couple of paramedics already there, and I've got my paramedic who I didn't get along with very well, to be yeah, honest. Right. Um, so I start issuing orders. Right, do this, do this, do this. I need this done. And nothing's happening. The team's kind of pushing back against me. So in the end, uh, I don't know, I get pretty uh, bossy and yeah. gobby and go into military mode and start bucking orders and getting shit happening. And we get this patient to a hospital. Uh, he dies a couple of days later. But from a job perspective, we did everything that we could be expected. We get blood on scene. We gave an anesthetic. We got him out of there as fast as we could. We get back to the base and the pilot says he wants to debrief with all of us. And he said, that was like one of the best jobs I've ever done. That was, he was really pumped. That yeah, was awesome. This is the pilot. Yeah. The <clears throat> pilot. And then the paramedic says to me, well, actually, uh, I want to talk about, she wanted to talk about how bad I was. And she was saying, you know, you were trying to tell everyone what to do. And that just doesn't work. You were barking orders. And, uh, you know, and I, so I'm there going, well, yeah, what do you expect? I'm in charge. Yeah. Do what you're told. If you just done what you're told, instead of fighting against me, the job would have gone well. You know, we had this big argument and um, I ring one of the, yeah. my mentors and I said, oh, I'm really sort of frustrated. You know, I don't want to be that person that creates conflict. But I felt like the team didn't understand what the job it's that needed done, to yeah. be done. And they made it a lot harder, actually. What do you think? And he said, he said, I think what you're doing sometimes, Bill, is you're rapidly assessing something mm-hmm. in your brain and then you just start giving orders. But you haven't brought your team along that journey. And maybe in the military you're used to not having to explain the reason behind something. You just give the instruction and people do it and if they've got a problem, we'll talk about it in a debrief, which is kind of how yeah. elite teams, maybe that's what George yeah. Gregan's alluding to. He doesn't have time under the post when he says we're going to do mm-hmm. X after this. Something. Like, oh, can you just talk me through the machinations <laughs> yeah. of that, George? No, right? We'll talk about it yeah. in the changing rooms after. And, you know, same when we've been on jobs, right? Whoever's yeah. in charge, you just, even if you don't agree with it, you know that it's yeah. better that we all do it than if, 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 mm. if there's not time. It's yeah, that authoritative yeah. leadership, right? We've got a sense of when you can talk and when you can't. If we're planning a job, sure, yeah, yeah. we can hack it out. Debrief, you can hack it out. But on the job, you do what you're told, right? Yeah, live and in that moment. And, yeah. and you do what you're told not because we're robots or automatons or people are kind of, oh, in the military, you just bark orders at each other yeah. and you'll do it. No, it's not like that. It's because people understand the importance of a team coming together. Yeah. Um, you know, 10 men wisely led is better than 100 without a head. Mm-hmm. These are these kind of mantras that we have in the military. So... I realized on the civvy side, in my mind, I'm going, well, it's, there's still an, an authority here. Mm. I'm the doctor. You're the paramedic. I'm in charge. But they don't see it that way. Mm. Interesting. And, in fact, a lot of work environments are like that where if you've got it in your mind that, okay, I'm in charge, well, maybe other people don't have that. Yeah. And it, if you just take that extra 30 seconds to go, and I learned sort of ways of delivering information um, where you – state something obvious first that's irrefutable. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, I might say, hey, I'm, everyone, 
I notice that the blood pressure is really low. Yeah. Now, no one's going to refute that because that's a known fact. So you don't start with a, an opinion. You start with a yeah. fact. Then you might take that fact and lead them somewhere where you want to go. Now, that's where you influence your leadership because it may not be where they were going to go. So you might say things like, I think we'd all agree. Now, that statement in itself is already moving people in the yeah. direction because you've just said, I think we'd all agree. <laughs> and it's helping them feel connected to that, like just hearing you say that. That's right. And it's a social proof. So it's almost like for someone to oppose that now, it sounds like we've all agreed on a plan. It's yeah. not, I think. I think we'd all agree that this patient needs to get to the hospital in a hurry. Yeah. Now, no one's going to refute that. Mm. But already you're shaping the situation in a way that's more likely to get buy-in than going, yeah. you put a cannula, you get the stretcher, you do this, you get that chopper. And they'll be like, yeah. you do it. Yeah. <laughs> you're not the boss of yeah. me. Yeah. Tell me what to do. <laughs> I've been doing this job longer than you. Mm. But if it's a, hey, everyone, I think we'd agree, I'm really concerned that uh, if it's okay with you, I need you yeah, to do these yeah. things for me, that would be great. Now, initially I found that a bit of that kind of, oh, that's bullshit, I shouldn't have to do that, blah, blah, blah. And then yeah, you sort of I think, well, that's that. actually a pretty arrogant approach. Oh, I've got to adapt leadership to the environment that you're in. And in fact, right. if I bark orders, maybe I get the result I want. But man, working with that person the next time is going to be even harder. Yeah. Because now they're like, oh man, I don't want to work with this guy, Bill. He's a, he's a dick. He's always yeah. gobbling off and telling me what to do. And Whereas if you're collaborative, yeah. when you need to be, mm. or maybe you're just explicit, you're up front and say, listen, I'm really sorry, team. I don't think I've got time to explain everything. Yeah. Uh, I need the following things to happen in a hurry. And then we'll have a quick chat about what you guys think might be important. Is everyone okay with that? Mm. So it's being a bit more explicit about the situation. And I've found that's been more successful than our military style of leadership, which, you know, we keep saying that in some ways we've had the sense that the military are experts on leadership. We yeah. are experts on leadership within that military environment. Yeah. But even in quasi-military environments, and that, that helicopter was as close to the military as you get. It was military people. It was briefings. It was very military-like in its execution of tasks. Yeah. Yet still, you had to be cautious about your approach and that George Gregan comment that you got to you got to take that extra breath just just to as frustrating as I found it initially. It was like, yeah. why do I have to explain myself, or why I don't have time to explain myself? It was like actually, you've always got time, mm. and by taking a breath. And sharing your mental model, what's inside your brain, yeah. and taking them on this—it's a guided journey. You're not—you're not making it too open. Yeah, you're going to get better buy-in and a better team anyway. And then the next time they work with you, they'll feel that you're more collaborative. Yeah, yeah. Far out. So that's that sort of recognition of of what's going to work in this space. Um, and it's been a useful model for not just those medical environments, but other environments too. Yeah. Mm. Man, that's impressive. I, just just hearing that I can connect with so many things that you're sharing. I'm taking a lot of information from you and just jotting down a whole bunch of notes, but it's really, it's a lot of wisdom and stuff in there because I was going to say in that environment, you would have been so used to and accustomed to instantly assessing a situation, being able to process information and make a decision of what you felt 
and or probably what you knew needed to happen in those moments. And so used to having a team, I, I would imagine here, or presuming having a team of members that are also looking at things, maybe not taking in all the same information or the same decisions as what you are, but would be proactively looking to start doing those things and would have no problem with being told to do X, Y, Z because it's it's glaringly obvious that these uh, that this needs to happen. But to be able to adjust and and reflect it, well, by the sounds of things of what you've been able to do, of what's happened in those situations, reaching out to a mentor to get their input, to then glean from that and, and take those learnings and apply them is powerful stuff in, in the context of being able to adjust to the different environment because civilian world, you know, I've, I found it very difficult to adjust and I sort of want to, this is leading into my question with you with the transition and stuff out and you've been touching on a lot of stuff already which has been awesome but that that transition <clears throat> and that ability to see these different things I think just in and of itself is going to be so helpful for <clears throat> whether they're former operators of the SAS or not just in general to be able to see some of the I guess some people might call them weaknesses in us or flaws in us from a civilian perspective because we've been wired a certain way for such a long period of time and the conditioning around certain environments and moments in our lives have have helped us um, equip us to be able to deal with those moments and those situations because we've got a team of like-minded people. Now we've got not necessarily a team of like-minded people in, in many respects like-minded and they're wanting to serve and help others different in the technical aspects of their skills, paramedics, crewmen, pilot, doctor, all that sort of stuff, are wanting to come together for a common collective, but our backgrounds and histories are not the same. So therefore, we're getting a different picture and communicating different different things or in different ways. And so, man, I just love the way that you've spoken about that. Some of the things I've jotted down, starting with an obvious fact first, that's, you know, that it can't be disputed and then leading them where you're wanting them to go. Just fire out. Awesome stuff. I, I think I think too often, you know, when you've got situational awareness, mm. uh, as a team leader, and by a team leader, I mean you don't have to be the CEO or yep. the nominated person in a, business, in a company, right? Like some of the best leadership I've ever seen is from junior nurses mm. in a room full of doctors or a junior private in a room full of officers, right? Like... So you, you can be a leader in your workplace whether you've been given that title or not. But in the leadership role, usually you've got situational awareness. You see the whole picture mm-hmm. where other people are task fixated. So when you start giving direction, it's from a position of a perception of all those yeah. elements and what those elements mean in the future. Whereas someone's been busy on a task, they don't, they don't see the context of what yeah. you're saying. They can't connect the rest of the dots. So, yeah, so... And that could be anything. Could be a, a, maybe you're giving direction to the company about how we're going to change direction here. People, are, what are we doing that for? Yeah, yeah. Where if you've given it context and and brought people into your mental model first, mm. you, I think you, you get better, better, and better at, get, at how to get that buy-in. Yeah, perfect. But I used to think that was unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I realise now it's actually more probably more important. Yeah. than the message and I've become more aware that if people know you've been in the unit or even in the army mm. can be really you've got to be careful of that perception yep. that can be really negative mm. and 
despite you, they pigeonholed you, they stereotyped you yeah. in a way that that you actually have to fight hard against. Yeah. Because if you're not careful, they'll. And I think there's been so much negative press about the SAS in the last couple of years that you're ashamed, not ashamed, but you want to keep it even quieter. Because mm. um, of being judged, criticised. Being judged yeah. and people just go, well, you're just a hired assassin and, you know, you might be a bit dangerous in the workplace. You're trying to soften your image and, and all this is doing is is painting you as, as something that you're not. Mm. Um, so I think... Uh, and again, with the word veteran is frequently associated with the word broken. Yeah, that's true. It's associated with not fitting in, with PTSD, with mm. problems. Yeah. So uh, what you're doing, I think, by openly talking about who dares wins and service in the unit, mm. and I love the fact you're calling it in the service of others. I love that because mm. that's exactly what it is yeah. and that's exactly what we did when we joined, I, I would say to people, I get asked, I would used to get asked sometimes, Bill, how many people did you kill in the SAS? Mm-hmm. And I would just joke and go, well, not as many as I've killed as a doctor. That's why I came to medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what what but, was their reaction to that? Yeah. I think people get used to your humor <laughs> after a while. But, uh, you know, I said I spent more time helping people in the SAS than I did anything yeah. else. Like when we go to East Timor, that's about helping people in East mm-hmm. Timor. Now, Sometimes there were humanitarian tasks and sometimes there were chasing and if need be killing bad people, just like a policeman will do on Mm. the street. Um, And are we highly trained to do that? Well, of course we are. That's why we're successful in what we do. But that doesn't mean that we want to go out and kill people. Uh, So I think what you're doing is really good too because it helps hopefully people who haven't served in the unit will see that we are just – ordinary people who are striving for excellence that's all and it's always in the service of of other people and much more frequently we've gone on to continue to service other people like what you're doing right now um we've we take that mindset and take it to something positive as well beautiful um and i think if you're transitioning out that's that's an important component too and the transition wasn't easy for me it's easy for me to talk about now and reflect on some of those things where i've grown and i'll continue to grow but it's been a very rocky course and you know, I haven't got it right. Uh, and man, and I really struggled when I got out for sure. That's well, that's would you mind? That was going to be my next question. Would you mind speaking a bit about that in terms of what that transition has been like? So was it instant? How did your transition? Sorry. How did your transition out of the unit come? Was it always the plan to plan to become a doctor? And what has that sort of, you know, was it easy? Has it? What have been some of those challenges for us? Yeah, like the decision to leave the unit came pretty just all of a sudden. I'd planned to serve forever, and yeah, uh, in the back of my mind, I'd thought about going to the UK and uh, yeah, and relinquishing my commission and becoming a trooper with two two. But I think, um, you know, once I started, once I got married and had kids, that that, that, that yeah. changed. Uh, and then a few things happened in quick succession. I think like anything like once I got badged I was told you're about to see the unit warts and all and it's true you've been given a a sanitized version of the unit before you join and almost on yeah. you know you you don't see the directing staff you don't see their foibles they're only presenting you one image yeah. um 
and now you're seeing the screw-ups and the yeah. lack of equipment maybe and then you start to get exposed yeah. to some of the infighting and some of the politics that because you've got this idea that's one big happy family and everything's awesome. Of course it's mm. not. That's naive to think. And, you know, I've sometimes said to people, well, there's 10% of any organization is, is shit, is Deadwood, and it's the same in the SAS. There's, mm. there's a component of people there that have passed their use by date. Um, so you, but you don't see that till you get in amongst it. And I think initially you're so busy being busy and learning your trade and then once you get a bit more comfortable, you've got a bit more headspace to start to see the problems. Yeah. So I think it was a component of that. Um, there was a New Zealand unit is very insular and small, mm-hmm. strong personalities. And, uh, and particularly amongst the officers, there was a lot of negative politicking at the time that I was yeah. serving. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of, mm, I wasn't gelling too well with, with that component of it. Yeah. Um, I just handed over on a on a overseas job to a, a colleague of mine, uh, John McNutt, who I'd kind of mentored oh. through as well. He was a couple of years behind me at Duntroon. Yeah. We'd all sort of kept in touch. He'd asked me a lot about selection. I'd really encourage him to come to the unit. Yeah. And then in in uh, Kuwait, he'd come over to replace me, and I'd really encouraged him to. I oh, look, you know, one of the tasks we do over here is forward controlling. Um, yeah. We were kind of we were the forward deployed element. So if Iraq reinvaded Kuwait, we would keep Iraqi armor at bay with fast jets and bombs. So we would go out pretty routinely and practice that. And we had to hold Iraq back for 96 hours so the American division could fly in. Um, And it was one of those forward air controlling missions that that went awry and and John and six others were killed. So that happened pretty quickly after I'd handed over to him. And then I flew back over to, to bring his body home. And that was a fairly uh, confronting process, right? Because you mm. you see your friend dead on a plate in a morgue. It's a military morgue in Germany. He had very little injuries, actually. He had a tiny bit of shrapnel that had come through behind his ear. Yeah, right. Uh, and it had actually been up. Uh, yeah. Uh, so he wasn't as injured as what I thought he would be. And, and the other guys were quite badly injured, mm. the ones that were killed. Uh, when I say badly injured, obviously they're badly injured because so they've died, but their injuries were very yeah. shocking, yeah. as you'd expect when three or five hundred pound bombs land in amongst a group of men. Yeah. So then, sort of putting John's body on a giant C seventeen cargo plane, where it's you and your mate's coffin in the centre, strapped in the middle of this giant plane, and it was sixteen hour flight to New York to refuel, and then another sixteen hour to fly to New Zealand. That's a long time just yeah. sitting there on your own uh, reflecting. And it did make you wonder if it was worth it. And it was so close to home because A, he's a friend, and B, he'd just taken over. That would have been me. Yeah. Could have, yeah. So I think I was a bit unsettled when I got back about that. And um, uh, and I got given my career history, my, my plan for the future, and the unit was to stay there that plotted me out for another six or seven years to stay there, which should have been a dream. But it just made me think, oh, I don't know if I want to stay anymore. Um, mm. And so that started the process to think about leaving. And when I talked earlier about the naivety, I was actually, I started to think about what I would do. Yeah. And because of that experience on selection, where I had was going to quit but kept going, yeah. 
I thought I could have walked off selection on day two mm. and nothing would have, you know, no one would have judged me for that. But instead I kept going and I got badged. Mm. I never thought I'd be badged. Like I always wanted to be, but I never knew if I could achieve that goal. So now that I have achieved that, man, what else could I achieve if I really put my mind to it? So I'm going to strive for things that I think might actually be beyond my reach and see if I can get them. Because what you got to lose it is literally who dares wins, yeah. right? And even if you fail in the pursuit of that, you're still richer for the experience. Yep. You don't go forward by just taking on things that you know you can achieve. Yeah. That's not great. Yeah. So I started to throw the net a bit wider. I thought, well, I've always wanted to be a pilot. Maybe I do I go and do pilot training? Um, I was watching a TV show called ER, yeah. which is a yeah, American TV yeah. show. And I said to my wife one night, Oh man, that's if I, if I could do anything in the world, I would be an emergency doctor. Wow! And not actually thinking that was in the realms of what I might achieve. And then she said, "Well, why don't you give it a go?" So that sort of started me thinking about, um, well, maybe I will give this a go. And so, you're still in the unit at so this time, I, mate. You're still. Yeah. I was, yeah, yeah, and um, I was the team commander at the time. And so now that I sort of started thinking, uh, think more about medical school. One of the company commanders, a squadron commander, had recently left. I did, I'd never met him, but he'd gone out and gone to right. med school. So I got a hold of him, and he came around home with his wife, who was an ICU nurse, and he just said, look, uh, nothing within medicine is academically difficult. Wow. Because I'd say, look, my fear is that I'm just not smart enough. Like, I can put a pack on my back and train for that. You know, I can walk yeah. and walk and walk and walk and walk and eventually get fitter, but Surely I've only got a fixed IQ. And that says to my mindset at the time, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe anybody's got a fixed mm. IQ. I think IQ is a stupid test. It means nothing. And if you think you've got a low IQ, you're just self-limiting mm. yourself. It's got nothing to do with that. It's all to do with application. And he sort of encouraged me. He said, I said, what do you mean it's not hard? I mean, aren't all the guys I knew at high school that went to med school were really smart. He said, well, that's just because it's hard to get in. But you don't need that level of intellect to pass medical school. Wow. He said everything you learn will just be a discrete chunk of information. The problem is there's a lot of it. So you need a lot of time to keep it simple. So you've yeah. got to be motivated. If you don't really want to be a doctor, you're not going to get through because it requires a lot of dedication to just trying to assimilate the volume of material. But he said none of it in itself. It's not like the theory of relativity mm. or some abstract metaphysical concept that some top mathematician can get it's you know the vascular system is plumbing the heart's got electrical circuits i mean it's it's not and it's so true and it's so much repetition um most of my job as an ethos is actually bringing complex things down to a much simplified level of literally airway breathing circulation and the more intense the crisis is the more you you bring it back to basics actually you don't complicate it you draw people back into a basic solution a well-executed basic solution is going to be much, much better than some vague con- complex idea that no one else understands. So he sort of encouraged me to give it a go, uh, and I did. So I left the unit end of that year, and I spent the next six years at university. So did you go, was that leave without pay or something? Or No, I got out completely. Oh, you got out, so right. I needed to move to um, – well, I chose to move to Australia to do it. Yep. Um, and about the time I was getting out, end of 2001, Afghanistan had just kicked off. Yep. I got asked, do you want to stay and go to Afghanistan? Um, 
and it was really, really hard because I was, wow, man, I really want to go to Afghanistan. Yep. Um, we just had a baby. My wife is due to have another baby. And, you know, as you would know, like mm. my eldest, I saw him. I was actually deployed overseas when he was due to be born. Mm. I managed to wangle a flight back to see him being born. Yeah. And then I was redeployed to the Middle East almost immediately on a one-way ticket. And it took me five months to get home again. Yeah. So I hadn't seen anything of him when having another kid. Um, and I think, you know, if I'd stayed serving, I would have been divorced. Mm. I think um, that's just where it was heading. You know, I was just not yeah. never there. And I was placing the unit and work before my family. And Which is a common so thing, that, eh? It does happen. It's hard, it's eh? Hard. It's really hard. And I remember that, that the day after I was badged, I was told by my squadron commander, I'm disappointed that you're married. Wow. He said, in my view, you can't give to this unit if you're married. He said, but I suspect you won't be within a couple of years. <laughs> right. It was encouraged almost, yeah. right, to be divorced because then you had nothing else to do but mm. devote yourself to the unit. But what I noticed is that once you left the unit, you were chopped liver. Yeah. <laughs> it's bizarre, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, the most highly regarded operators would get a farewell in the smoko room there and I'd give a short, awkward speech. And then maybe a month later, you might see them come back to some happy hour and they'd have a visitor's pass on and people would be talking about them. Mm. Oh, loser, what's he doing back here? And I'd be like, wow, this is how we treat our own people. And these guys had done 20 plus years, their bodies were broken, their marriages were broken. They had no jobs to go to. One of our top operators I remember seeing as a security guard outside Woolworths. And I was like, wow, this is telling, man. Like, if you don't, this is, you know, one of the things you wanted me to think about was what message you would give to serving operators. And my message would be, you've got to have one eye to what you're going to do when you leave. Because one day it's going to end, whether you want it to or not. And the day that it ends, it ends, man. You don't get to have one foot in the unit and one foot out, it's gone. Mm. And it's and you're young because it's a young man's game. So if you haven't thought about what you're going to do when you leave, it's way too late when you're standing on the other side of the gate and your mates are saying, where you go? <laughs> yeah. off. See you later. <laughs> it has been, boy. <laughs> you're done. Um, and no one's going to care that you achieved the top of your game and that you were the yeah, best yeah. your country could offer. I don't care. In fact, quite the opposite. They might think you're a bit broken or a bit um, mm. screwy. And because of that isolation, you, you, yeah. you've lost some yeah, social yeah. skills. Uh, you suddenly find yourself in mixed company telling stories where you realize everyone else is going quiet <laughs> and looking at each other and you think, oh, whoops, that's, that's not a story for a mixed company. <laughs> How do I backtrack out of this one? Um, because what you see as normal behavior is just not normal for everyone else, right? It's, you know, I joined at 17 and, and my own whole adult lived experience was just being in the military and deploying and doing that stuff and yeah. it's, it's not normal. So I think if you're not thinking about that and, and then these days it's much, much easier to use the military to get tertiary qualifications and do those things, get the military to pay for it knock out a degree, doesn't matter what it's in, get a master's, get whatever you can out of the military before you get out and line up the job before. Because we were considered 
disloyal if we even talk to anyone on the outside. Remember? Like you, you know, you knew you guys were on the circuit, Mm. but you weren't allowed to talk to them. And if someone from the circuit was caught talking to someone in the unit, then they were spoken to. It's like you're poaching. But no other organization and no other corporation does that. It's quite normal to be always looking for another job or talking to competitors. That's, you shouldn't feel threatened. In fact, anyway, so I think guys should, you've got to line up the next job before you get out. Uh, And I reckon you need about one year out for every year that you've been in. So if you've only been in for five years, it's going to take you about five, four years to come back to baseline. If you've been in for 20 years, well, you're probably, you're just <laughs> too hard wide maybe. Yeah. It's going to be much, much harder. Um, I reckon it took me, I was in for, what, 11 years in the Kiwi Army and two or three years of in the Australian Army. Um, you know, I've been out 15, 16 years. I think I'm pretty <laughs> normal. Uh, now compared to every year I look back and think, man, I was green last year. I think about my behavior 10 years ago and I just yeah. cringe <laughs> because it was still pretty rigid and pretty military orientated, really, even though I thought I wasn't being that way. So it takes a long time to degreen. So, you know, that first one, two, three, four years out, you've got to not be so hard on yourself because – it is hard and you yeah. you really miss that. Probably the most thing you miss is that camaraderie and the banter and and getting together with ex-military mates. I mean, it's fantastic, right? Because mm. you slot straight in and the biggest difference is how much <laughs> shit you give to each other. Um, yeah. You just don't speak like that in a civilian setting. So it's just nice to to drop, you know, drop that. But it it, it is hard. It's really hard. And the whole way you're wired and the way you've built yourself up. And I think as much as we say we shouldn't, we do attach our mm-hmm. sense of self-worth to yep. the identity that we've built. Right, yeah. So, you know, I came into the unit, you know, you come in with your head down, you're looking around, but by the mm-hmm. time you leave it, you're pretty yep. confident, right? You've been around, you've, um, you've been tested. Yeah. Hopefully you've stood up. Um, yeah. You have people's respect. And so you feel, you know, like when I left, I'm like, you know, I'm an SAS captain, man. I've, I've, I've done what I set out to do. Then you get out, mm-hmm. you're no one. No one cares. And yep. I lost that identity and I wasn't good at anything because I'm not getting a chance to do the things I'm good at. So I go to university. Uh, initially, I did a degree to get into med school. So I was just doing a Bachelor of Arts. So I'm doing like English literature some you know and i'm i didn't know how to talk to females because my company <laughs> infantry in the unit where we didn't really have women they talked to us. um <laughs> yeah of course they would right um you know you only had one way of drinking <laughs> and that's like you don't have a social drink you have a drink and you just get hammered yeah, yeah. that's what you do everyone's happy to have couple of drinks and that call it a day and you're like, what? Oh, we're just getting started. Um, so, you know, and then, uh, you know, got young kids and that's difficult. Um, I'm 
you know, stumbling and falling, and especially in, you know, first few months of medical school, you don't seem to know anything. Your lecturers and professors on the ward and the hospitals can be pretty brutal, pretty old school way of teaching. They'll really humiliate you in front of whole groups of people if you don't know yeah. something. So you've gone from being someone yep. and something and, and you're less than nothing and your your identity falls with that. Well, mm. mine did. Didn't feel like I was being a very good husband, a very good father, get frustrated with the kids when they won't sleep. You know, I wanted to be this cool, chilled out dude yeah. and I wasn't. Um, I didn't really connect with people at uni, so I've lost connection with everyone um, and I lost my identity and I went to a pretty dark place because I had too much pride to go back uh, But and I think going back would have been a, a mm-hmm. backward step too but I was searching for identity and I f- what I did is I found it uh, so the first thing I did was uh, I went I decided right, I need to get back in the environment so I went back to Iraq as a contractor in my first uni break yeah. at medical school. So I got on the first plane I could to Iraq and, you know, I almost wasn't sure if I was going to come back from that trip. Uh, what was it? I was just in a, I think I was just in a really bad mm. mental space, yeah. really bad mental space, I think. Uh, I couldn't see a way forward. Yeah, right. You know, um, I thought I'd, throwing my career away, thought I'm not cut out to do medicine, don't think I'm doing well at home. Everything that I've attached my identity and ego to is is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, just lost, eh? Yeah. And then I, I went to Iraq and and I, that very first night I was in Iraq, uh, we got mortared. So I was in a little porter cabin um, the team I was attached to was out on a task. They said, they'll be back tomorrow and you'll join this team. Yep. Here's your porter cabin. Here's a, a gun, AK, and some body armor, a Glock pistol. Uh, I think they gave us a couple of grenades each yep. and said, you know, here's your porter cabin. And it was on the airport, inside the airport precinct. And and I woke up and we were getting mortared. And I felt completely at home for the first <laughs> time. Mm. And I just kind of smiled and right over and went back to sleep. And I just felt just alive again. And the next day I was just like full of beans. Yeah, man. Yeah, the smell of the desert and the dust and being around gun oil and um, met the team and and right, what are we doing? And and I realized it was because I wasn't looking too far ahead. I'm back to just day by day Mm -hmm. existence again. I'd, I'd lost my way and I'd lost that method of what I'd, was had worked for me in the past, which was not looking too far ahead. I'd forgotten that lesson, and I think Iraq kind of I had to relearn that lesson over there because that was that was a really dangerous deployment. Um, you know, we yeah, it was all all pretty loose still at that time. By the time we yeah, that there. was two thousand four. I mean, we were in unarmored vehicles. Um, one day we got shut up really badly by the, by Americans who thought we were insurgents. Yeah. With you know bullets going through the car. There were three car bombs a day on the road that we used to drive on. It was seriously dangerous mm. stuff. Um, we were co-located with an American company who were losing three a day, getting yeah. killed. So guys you'd have breakfast with would be dead by lunch. Um, so it was pretty full on, and uh, but I loved yeah. it. I, I just came alive yeah. again, and 
and and and then I came back sort of re- a little bit rejuvenated because I found my identity again. But but then there was they kept having these forays back into that world. I needed to go back to where I was good at something again. And I kind of wish I didn't need that, but I did. And I kept going to. So so for the next six or seven years, I did. I went to Afghanistan. I went in and out of Africa. I went in and out of South America and uh, did some bodyguard work and. And for a while there, I looked at just dropping medicine altogether and just going back into it because it's created a business yeah. out of it. Uh, you know, I did one job that went particularly badly and landed a few people in jail uh, and nearly got myself put in jail for it. And I think, I had to really think, well, coming unstuck a bit here. Um, because in that unit world, you are deployed to badlands where there's no government, no control, but you're still within a controlled structure. You're still within a unit, and you're deployed and you return. Now you're deploying with private security companies, that real explosion of private security companies. And we were places where we have our own helicopters and guns, and, yep. and there's no control. Uh, and if you're not careful, you start to inhabit that world, that mental mm-hmm. space too. You, you just come home, all you're doing is you're searching the internet looking for the next job. You're disengaging from the world around you and it's it's addictive. It's really addictive, right? Because when you go there, you're yeah. back in your world. Yeah. And it wasn't really until I started to – it was a long time before I started to feel good at anything in medicine. You know, you've got all those years as a medical student. Then you've got junior doctors, really tough. You're bottom of the heat. You're screwing up everything. Um, you know, it's a really long apprenticeship. Even when you get on the training program as an anaesthetist, it's a lot of years before you're getting good at it. So, it's I think it's difficult, and I, I was lucky that medicine kept me busy a little bit mentally. So you were doing your studies in between, like while your yeah. deployments and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And then when I became a junior doctor, I would take two or three months off okay. and just just head out to the Badlands. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I think it took me a while to kind of settle back down. And I've got to be honest, one, a bit of a turning point for me was reading. I don't know if you remember the battalion. There's a guy called Dion Jensen. Dion Jensen. I remember the name. Yeah, Dion Jensen. He was in mortars. Now, Dion has, he's got what's called the Lion Academy. Lion Academy. Um, and he's, he's a legend and he's done amazing work in the world of PTSD and mental health. Um, awesome. And I'd encourage anyone just to Google the Lion Academy. Yep. I think it's lionacademy.co.nz. Nice. Uh, or Dion, Dion Jensen, Lion Academy. And he's got a free book called PTSD, The Good News. Cool. PTSD, The Good News. And what it is, I read his book and um, it really changed my whole outlook. What his book was about was saying, you've got these, what, this is, this is his, his version and I think it's really eloquent. Yeah. He said, you've got subconscious bodyguards. You're trained in the military to be hypervigilant. Mm. And that hypervigilance has kept you alive. It's done its job. When you're on operations and you get that bad feeling or you get a sense that something's not right, that's hypervigilance at work. Um, You detect danger very, very quickly. And your response to danger, um, I think we learn in the military that if you're scared, you can't function, mm. right, if you've got yeah. fear. So the best way to overcome fear is anger. Mm. 
mm-hmm. in the military. Get angry. I found that the first time I was felt real sense of danger when you're getting shot at for the first time is I'd like to say I was had no fear and I was all over it, but I was absolutely terrified that I was going to get killed. Um, and actually it was fear of embarrassment probably more than anything that drove me to, to initially perform that I didn't want to look uh, cowardly. But also I got angry. I Instead of just sensing bullets coming at me, I thought of the human behind that. And that made me, I pictured that person. And I pictured that person trying to stop me going home to my family. And I got angry. I'm like, I'm coming for you. And that spurred me to action. But the problem with this mindset, it's really effective, right? It keeps you alive. But you start to wire yourself that way. So that your reaction to most things becomes anger. Because anger's a Anger's a uh, a doing emotion. It's not a victim. It's not a helpless emotion. You don't lie on the ground crying, mm-hmm. feeling angry. That that's helplessness. When you're angry, you yeah. you're doing something. And I realised that I was responding to so many situations with anger. Um, yeah. to my kids and my wife. Um, and I wasn't really aware that this was becoming a default setting because your family put up with a lot right um they put put up with it for years i think and you know just during two yeah after yeah you know you um it's amazing that and i can't imagine what it must be like when that marriage breaks down as well i mean i've been really lucky that melissa stood by me Mm. through that time um despite some of my really poor behavior um, to get us to this point where I feel like we're probably the best we've ever been. Mm. But anywhere along the way there, you know, if it wasn't for her, it certainly wasn't my behaviour that was keeping us together. Yeah. And quite the opposite. Um, so I think Dion's book kind of helped me understand that, okay, I think I am hypervigilant. I'm, I'm wired, man, all the time. Yeah. Like I'm really wound tight. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're bodyguarding or you're on close protection tasks, mm-hmm. that's all you're doing, right? You're yeah. looking for yeah. threats all the time, yeah, all the time. And then when you come home and you yeah. you go out to McDonald's with your kids, you'll sit in the back corner and you're just yeah. assessing every threat in McDonald's, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to watch that, dude. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What about that one? All right. Yeah. Got him. You go out for a drink in the city with your friends. It's not relaxing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You still got that many what if scenarios going on. Yeah, yeah you're just yeah. sucking that whole bar out, right? Yeah. You're looking for trouble. Mm. Um so it's becoming aware that that's even happening. Mm. So that was his first step. Was Dion going, Well, actually, of course this happens. You were white. That's why they want us when we're so young. We joined at 17. We were trained to be like that. Mm-hmm. And we developed that. And the the military rewards angry behavior, actually, mostly. Um, so it's encouraged. Obviously, there's a cap to it. You mm. can't overdo it. But controlled aggression is definitely a very, very powerful tool to get you out of all sorts of situations. Yeah. You, you get aggressive. You get aggressive. You can achieve a lot. Yep. Um. But it's it's understanding. So what Dion was was trying to allude to was that you've got to acknowledge when this is happening. You've got to thank 
your internal bodyguards because they're trying to keep your life mm. and tell them to stand down. <laughs> I don't need you this time. Yeah. So instead of trying to fight your instinct, you acknowledge what's happening, and it's it's the self awareness that that's happening. Oh, and that's why when you know I'd realise that when I was acting out badly, sometimes it'd be say one of the kids had dropped a plate. If I got shocked mm-hmm. with something. I get an immediate adrenaline surge because that's what my body's used to doing, yeah. adrenaline surge so I can re- react. But now you've got all this adrenaline coursing through your veins at the dinner table. That, ad- that adrenaline doesn't lead to gentle discussions yeah. <laughs> about the day, right? Yeah, 100%. And your adrenaline not only is prime, but it's prime for you to get angry, yeah. get aggressive. Um, so now it's understanding that, okay, I think all operators would go through this when they get out because we're, we're wired pretty similarly and that, that you're not broken. Um, quite the opposite. You, you're a powerful human. That's what's, you're a warrior and that's what's kept you. That's what's, you, you've been out in the badlands and your behavior and wiring has allowed you to perform in a way that's awesome for your brother's for your country, for whatever needs to be done. But unfortunately, that wiring is not useful for when you get out and um, you can't just turn off hypervigilance. It's almost always there. But you can dampen it down a bit. You can acknowledge it and then, and then move on to the next thing and let people in and show vulnerability. And that's really against the grain for us. But until you do that, you're not going to move forward in my view. And what I was doing was not moving forward or growing. I was running actually. Yeah. I was escaping right. to those yeah. environments that were, that were comfortable yep. for me instead of having the courage to address what was going on and deal yep. with that. And I think oh, being aware that that's what you're doing. I mean, it was easy for me to justify. It was good money. I needed to pay my way through mm-hmm. med school. Um, I told myself I had no other options. Yeah, we can convince ourselves eh, to get back to that, those those sorts of things. <laughs> of course, of course. But and some of that was yeah. true, but none of it was helpful. Mm. So Dion's book was a turning point for me. I think um, I encourage you, yeah. you know, guys to look at look for that. Did um, you read that book, Bill? Like how, how far into your study? Uh, a yeah, long way right. out. Long way out, man. Maybe ten years oh, after wow. I left. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to get that um, I find these things, if you don't address, they never go away, right? You might get really good at yep. suppressing them, but yeah. they come back. And they come back in times of stress. Um, so until you take them on and address them, it's not going to change. And I think have got to be sensitive here to, to, the, to the, that it's yep. a spectrum, that, we, that we've got to find our way of coping but being a medical practitioner, I feel that sometimes the psychiatrists and people involved yeah. sometimes are mm. not helpful. Mm. Um, they want to label yeah. the behavior and they want to treat it with medication mm. sometimes. Now, if you start defining yourself by what someone else yep. tells you you are, just because someone says that you're broken, just because someone says you're depressed, because someone says you've got PTSD, doesn't mean that you do. Love that. Right, that's someone else's reality. That's not your reality. And just because it seems to come from an authority, just remember all those times where you, where you stuck your middle finger at authority. Why are you suddenly now accepting authority when you 
didn't before. Like get a bit, you can rally against that. You can yeah. get a bit angry against that. You know what? I'm not broken. I'm not defined by that. Um, I think Dion says it's not post-traumatic stress disorder. It's kind of chronic mm, stress injury. I like that. You know, it's, oh, we've been exposed yeah, yeah. to chronic stress yep. over a long, long period of time. And, and there's, a, there's an injury to that. And that's okay. That's normal. Um, it doesn't mean we're broken. And we've got to find a way to navigate our way out of that. That's got to be a yep. self-journey. You can use your podcast like this or there's yeah. lots of avenues out there. I think you've got to find the news that you want. Don't gravitate to the yeah. news that you don't want to hear. Unfortunately, with the Australian Defence Force, there's a lot of well-remunerated pathways. And if you, you have to be broken mm. to get access to that money. You have to be defined, defined as broken. Yeah, yeah, that's the... And if you're not careful, you'll define yourself like that and that'll become your reality. Um, so I want to be careful there that I'm not criticising in any way or judging anyone that has required a lot of support because there are people out there that need that support at that time in their life, 100%. Yeah. But there's also good news around that. And there's some actually, and, and Dion's book's one of the only ones I've read that's been about, I just love the title. Yeah. PTSD, the good news. You're yeah, like, what? Better, yeah. The good news? What does that mean? <laughs> and it's free. He's got it on, you know, you just download it. Um, Fantastic. So I think, and he writes it in a, in a soldier, soldierly yeah. way, right? He, he talks about the scout and the medic and the gun commander as being different parts of your yeah. mindset. So he writes in a way that you can understand and relate yeah. to. And it comes from someone who, I mean, Dion was in the infantry, served in Bosnia, was a police officer on the front lines of South yeah, Auckland. Right. Uh, he's, he's been at the, yeah. at the front end of yeah. all this stuff and, and had to cope with it and live with it. So, yeah, I think that, I think that transition, it wasn't easy mm. for me. And um, I don't know that's easy for anyone, to be honest. But we've all got to find and navigate our way to the other side of it. And it's a treacherous path because there's lots of temptations along the way to check out of that process. Yeah, yeah. And and the challenge is not to do that. For me, the first point was that self-awareness. How Am I happy with who I am and how I'm behaving at the moment? If I'm honest with myself, it's no. I don't like mm-hmm. what I see. Um, I know where I want to be, but I don't know how to get there. And I can't understand why I'm behaving the way that I am. And it doesn't matter how many, if you're good 90% of the time, if you undo it all, yeah. you know, 1%, 1% yeah. even of the time. You want to – so I had to see that as a challenge too, right? I, I, this is a worthwhile endeavor. I've got to stop thinking too far down, take it day by day, get some self-reflection about – I think at one point I realized I'm just working too many hours. I'm too burnt out at work and I've got no energy left mm. for the other stuff. So I'm going to start by cutting back work. Um cut back what I'm taking on. Too much of what I'm taking on is too much ego-driven. You know, Bill, can you do this? If it's at work, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get asked into the dishwasher at home. No. <laughs> you put the washing on? What? You do it. <laughs> yeah. That's not It's not standing up in front of a group of That's people. That's not cool. <laughs> yeah. Dishwasher. Washing. <laughs> 
my boys are always like, um, I'd say to them, hey, can you take the bins out? They go, is that because mum asked you to do it? <laughs> well, Clever boys. Why would I do it <laughs> when you're here? So I think it is tough because we, you know, we do, we do define, you know, we do define ourselves by that, that culture and, and we've got to be careful. It doesn't go to our heads yeah. and that we, other people define units like the SAS as being elite and special. Mm. Uh, but those of us that have been in it do not, mm-hmm. we're not special. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're just motivated. Yeah. We were lucky enough not to get injured on selection. Mm. We, um, yeah. Things just went our way to get badged, and we were lucky enough to deploy. Lots of guys served and never deployed, so we were lucky. But we weren't. You can't be. Can't buy into that. Um, what everyone else says about it. you know, you read about the all black culture, yeah. and it's very much about keeping things level, yeah. being humble. Um, true, eh? You're only as good as your last game. That kind of that culture of humility really, really relates to that. Allows them to perform at that level and not get too big ahead. You know. I've um, met quite a few of the All Blacks, mm-hmm. you know, recently, and they're really humble. Yeah. It's the thing that you, strikes you most is the humility. So just because we've been in the unit, don't let what other people define you get to your head and don't let this broken label be attached to you. Be proud. Be proud. Beautiful, man. That's um, love. Those insights. That's that's powerful stuff. I've, I've scribbled a whole bunch of notes all over my book and stuff here, and um, really going to take a lot of learnings from these and, and make sure that they're shared. Uh, just not only with the written content that we'll put out in and around this when we announce your interview um, or this conversation, but just going forward, I'm I'm really keen to delve into some of Dion Jensen stuff now. That sounds great. Yeah, the PTSD, the good mm. news. Like you're right. That I was like, as soon as you said that title, I was like, huh? The good news? That, that's interesting. <laughs> but um Yeah. Man, really insightful stuff you've mentioned, Bill. I I um wanted to get into and talk about and thank you for being so raw with everything and open and honest and just you know, it's not easy. It's not a. It's not normal for people like yourself or people that have served in these types of environments or units to come out and speak about this stuff. That's you know very private, very personal, very security centered, and all those sorts of things. And just to hear, I knew I knew that the stuff that I was going to hear was going to be great from you. I didn't just I didn't anticipate how much I would glean from it though. Um, until now, listening to you, you've you've spoken about the relationship and stuff with um, with your wife who's been a rock and, and stuck by your side, just those aspects in and of itself um, around the relationships, the, the wiring with the anger coming into play. I know that a lot of people, because myself here included, can connect to what you've just shared just in that element uh, or those elements. I want to ask you about, you've, you've done the SAS, You've been through that process. I love the way that you you broke things down, peeled back layers and just focused on, okay, the, the next task at hand, what can I do? And then even if that task seemed too insurmountable at the time, then you looked at how could I break that back? For example, okay, can I put one foot in front of the other and be heading in the right direction? Some really awesome takeaways. <clears throat> then the need to, or with regards to transitioning out and keeping one eye on what's next or what will be part of your next journey or the person's next journey outside of life in this particular type of environment, which is really, really valuable as well because I wish I had have 
heard or known that because I, like you, I was like, I'm, I'm here now. I'm going to be here forever and, or until I die or something. And so the awakening around that and just hearing you articulate that so well, I'm really grateful for the need to then needing to relearn. Like you've identified the medical stuff. You've had somebody come and take some time, a friend, their wife would come and help and give some advice, really encouraged you, which is fantastic for us to have those mechanisms of support that we can lean on from time to time, or maybe they're just people that we happen to come into contact with or come across that can share some of their wisdom and insight with us to help us progress. And then the, that journey or challenge of needing to relearn losing some of our way because we've been so good at functioning so well at such a high level for such a long period of time, so then all of a sudden that's taken away and feeling like, well, where do I fit in this world? Where do I fit in this, wherever I'm at at this time, needing to try to find that. And then how you've been able to piece those together and build them over time, Bill, is, is incredible. Uh, can you, what I'm interested to hear about right now also is just, you've done the essays, you've done this doctoring thing and then the, what's that, 12 plus years study for you? Ballpark? Yeah, pro- probably, yeah, about that. And still, still obviously learning, I would say, and, yeah. and with regards to that skill and that industry and profession. And then becoming a helicopter pilot. Can you? When did that happen? Was that happening while you were studying to be a doctor? Did that happen? How did that come about? Like, And what's next in terms of plans of uh, – I think I mentioned in a post, it was great to reconnect with you – Looking forward to hearing when you're an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, once you've got that positive mindset, mm. I think that you're not afraid to fail. And a bit like that selection story that people often quit. Yeah, They think they've failed and they've actually just quit. Be careful, I think, when we think we've failed something. Did someone else tell you that? Mm. And if they do, do you have to believe that? Or did you actually quit? Um, you know, I was told when I was struggling to pass my one of my sets of exams, someone said to me, you only fail this exam when you stop trying to attempt to reset it. Wow. It's a different mindset. So yeah. I think when you got that mindset, so, I mean, flying, I just always wanted to do it, always been interested in it. I might go and have a look at it. It seems like a huge thing to take on. Yeah. Again, if you break it down into small steps, um, not a nine-day selection course, but a, day, a daily selection course yeah. or an hourly selection course or just the next checkpoint, that anything's achievable. So I just chipped away at it. And again, I thought other people have done this. Then I think I'll, I can get there. I won't – I don't have to be gifted. I just need to be dedicated. So you just have to depressurize yourself and go, well, if I'm taking longer to achieve a certain task, maybe it's learning how to hover a helicopter. Yeah. Some people seem to get it quickly. Some don't. You think, oh, well, I don't care. I'll get there eventually. Yeah. How are you with I'm hovering? Because I have heard that that's the, one of the more difficult Oh, parts. shit. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Awful. Yeah. Um, what's funny is my 16-year-old who wants to be an Apache pilot Yeah. Um, and Australia's buying Apache, he – he started to learn to fly helicopters and they're so good at visually cueing. They just look out. They're used to looking at a TV screen and backward engineering what the Xbox controller needs to do. <laughs> Whereas we tend to, like if I play with them, which isn't very often because I don't get invited, 
I'll look at the screen and I go, right, I need to jump. So jump is, uh, is that X? And I'm looking at the control and I'll put on it. No, is it B? And then you shot, right? You're gone. And they don't, they don't bother doing that. They just look at, they, they work through trial and error and visually queuing yeah. backward engineering what they're, what they want to achieve out there yeah. from their vision to back to what the hand needs to do, yeah. which makes them really gifted at things like flying. Flying, man. Because they don't think, I'm thinking about left pedal, right pedal, yeah. up, down with a collective throttle, cyclic. They're just looking out the window and they see the picture tilting one way. So they, oh, what do I, is that, oh no, I'll correct the other way. Oh, you got it. <laughs> so they just get there so much faster, whereas we're just overthinking it. <laughs> but it, it was just nice to be in that humbling environment again. And, mm. And because I sort of got my identity back through medicine and yeah. it was, it's good to keep challenging myself to go back to, you know, no one out, no one out at the helicopter school cares what you've done in life. Mm. means nothing yeah. when you get in that cockpit. So what? You might think you're awesome, but <laughs> you're just, just as bad as everyone else. Just another pleb, yeah. Exactly. But that's, I think, really good. Um, yeah. Obviously, all those other skills about mindset and dedication to craft and, and learning and rehearsals might make you apply yourself better, perhaps, because you've learned to apply yourself and you're used to learning new skills in the military. Yep. And for operators out there, I think you you underestimate how much you've learned. You've mm-hmm. learned thousands of courses back-to-back over the time that you've been serving. That's actually a skill to be taught something new and we were given short time to apply something weren't we? no matter what the course was. Yeah. Um, it was condensed. It was broken in stages and you had to pass it. Lots of people don't actually go through that at all. Mm. So you, you should be encouraged that you can retrain and whatever you want to with the same mind. It might be a totally different task, but it's the same mindset. Helicopter flying, same thing, you know, you, uh, and it was just funny being on the receiving end of criticism again, <laughs> And realizing that you become quite sensitive to negative criticism. And uh, there's one instructor out there who's particularly, well, they were very, very good anyway, but he was always really positive with his feedback. And I ended up finding I wanted to fly with him more often because I just liked hearing them, even if I fly badly. And one day I flew particularly badly. Nothing I did was working and I was just having a really bad day. Uh, and we landed, well, landed. I bounced the helicopter into the ground at the end of the <laughs> flight and I was shutting it down and I could see he was trying to think of something positive to say and the fact that he was taking ages to try to think of something made it even worse. <laughs> and in the end he just went, look, um, hmm. I think, Bill, you'd be disappointed with how you flew today. <laughs> that was his feedback. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and I was like crushed, absolutely crushed. But... Um, but yeah, I like, think those things. Uh, it sounds like that um, bit noisy. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> exactly. It's it. But it's really good for your. It's, you know, I think we can inevitably. Um, there's a fine line between being confident and self-confident and getting a big head. Yep. And when you, when you're becoming good at something like you did in the unit, you can you find yourself. Yeah, because it's normal human behaviour to go. Yeah, man, I think I'm, think I'm pretty mm. good at this. You wouldn't, you wouldn't say that outwardly, yeah, but yeah. you might inwardly. You've got a sense of whether you're good at something yeah. or not. We've all got that sense, yeah. and you should have a sense of where you stand in your profession. Mm. I mean, you wouldn't be professional if you weren't. 
it's a bell curve. You all, you want to be at the top of that mm. bell curve to be at the top of that bell curve of performance. You need to be, have a sense of where everyone else sits on that curve. Um, as you said, you know, each day you come to work, you want to meet the minimum mm. standard and then you want to try to go past that. You want to be better than average. And even in an elite unit, that means there's going to be guys that, who are average and you want to be on the other mm. side of that. Now, if you do feel like on some tasks or some things you are at the top of that bell curve, well, it's always short-lived because you've no sooner had that thought and you're going to come crashing yeah. back down. Right? That's life. But it's important that that happens, I think. And um, going off and doing new things like that, or whether it be learning an instrument or a language or a skill, you've always got to be doing something, I think, that keeps you humbled. Uh, and what's next? Well, Flying's going to keep me engaged for mm. a while. Well, uh, a, I can't do it forever because, um, you know, there's medical requirements that mean you're not going to be flying at 70 probably yeah. uh, unless you're passing those medical requirements. Um, so it's not something, you know, I know it's going to be short-lived, maybe, you know, 10 or 20 years. Who knows? Uh, and, but I will always be looking. If I feel like I'm getting on top yeah. of it a bit, like right now with the flying – I can, you know, do the basic stuff and, uh, you know, I've got a part-time job as a yeah. commercial pilot, but I'm looking, okay, what's next? I'll do a, a night rating or sling rating or some other level of training to keep yeah. me going. But if I feel like I'm really getting on top of it, then I'll, I'll look for something else. Um, awesome. because I think you, I think you have to, right? Yeah. Yeah. Keep growing and developing and yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe you. Uh, and as we get older, I think it's really important just to keep doing that. Whether you, you, no, no, sorry, go. Oh, I don't know. I just, just it doesn't matter. I think um, for me, language is something I've always been interested in. Yeah, uh, writing, maybe writing novels, or um, nice. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, something will crop up, but yeah. I've got a much more positive mindset about life and uh, where I sit in it. And um, but that, but that's taken a long time, man. It, yeah, that yeah. hasn't been a, uh, you know, it's easy. That's that. It's that picture, isn't it? Everyone's what they see at the top, the iceberg, and yeah. what yeah, they yeah. don't see underneath. Yeah. Like, I don't define myself by being a doctor or, or being a pilot or being an SAS. Yeah. Uh, other people define you as that. Yeah. Um, I just look for challenges and relish challenges. And if I if I'm failing at something, I think good. I've I've selected a challenge that's hard enough. Yeah. What would you say to to people, you know, potentially uh, operators from the unit or former operators from the unit, or maybe their current serving members uh, having a listen, or just defence force personnel in general that may struggle to to um, I guess have as positive a mindset as what you've been able to develop over time to the point where they're out now they're struggling to what would where would you guide them? Would you guide them to this Dion Jensen as a starting point? Would you, what advice would you give to try to help them sort of navigate? Cause they might be in that rut that you and I have been in with regards to needing to go to places to feel alive again, so to speak. Um, and, you know, struggling in that Where, what sort of advice or tips um, would you provide here in this setting to try to help? guide these people like a lot of stuff that or everything that you've shared so far has been really helpful and if they take the time to listen to it I know they'll get a lot from it but if we were to try to break that down to use your approach and strategy which I just absolutely love 
where might be one of the starting points that you could that you would try to advise on given the terrain that they might be looking at now if they're looking at this big picture I've got to get to there but how do I break that down what what would you share I think it's the start point is not looking too far ahead again you know whenever things get tough that strategy of just bringing things down to today um, nice you know the as a medical student I went as part of our drug and alcohol module when we learn about drug and alcohol addiction they encouraged us to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to see how alcoholics deal with that and it was really fascinating to see the alcoholic mindset where they their view is one day at a time wow right they don't they say I'm not going to drink today yeah. not I'm going to quit alcohol forever yeah, yeah. or I'm going to not drink for a week it's like just today and tomorrow's a new day mm. and again that's a bit of that mindset of when things are difficult bring it down to something small you can get through a day no matter how hard the day is going to be right um if you're alive you're still in the game mm. you can't be in the game if you're going to take your own life um so as long as you're living and if, if a day's too much, then you go, well, I'll get to lunchtime or I'll get through the next hour. So I think there's that component of people who are really struggling. Yeah. And, you know, we know that suicide amongst veterans is very, very high. Um, so clearly there's a lot of people in that really dark, dark place. And I think plenty of us have been to places like that where we question our value and yeah. that we've got nothing else to contribute in life. And if there's been marriage breakdown and financial stress and you are left with, well, what's mm. the point? Uh, or you're feeling like you're a burden. So I think that first point is just breaking it down yeah. into, I've got to be alive to be in it. Right. That means you've got to be want to be in it too. Cause I think people at that place where they feel like they don't want to be in it anymore. So, so not overthinking it, not thinking too far ahead. Um, just like when you're doing those long, there's no one that served that hasn't been on a long pack march. Doesn't matter what core or service yeah. you served in. Uh, you know, I was taught switch off and think about sex. <laughs> I remember that scene too. Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, whatever it takes, but the, if you just got to, it's not the mindset you don't have to think about sex, but um, switching off yeah. to an extent. And just putting one foot in front of the other. Don't overthink about what tomorrow, next month, next year, next 10 years mm. has got to bring you. It's too much of this, what's your five-year plan, 10-year plan yeah. stuff going on. It's too stressful. Um, and I think there's a huge amount of you decide where your brain wants to take you. Now with social media and, and other things, if you're seeking, you'll find what you're looking for. I've, I don't know how I came across Dion's work. I can't remember the exact right. pathway to it, but I found mm. it and it resonated. And that was the right thing for me to hear at that time. Uh, equally, I've had colleagues who, who can't even get out of their house for the last 10 years um, through depression and, mm. and PTSD. And maybe they went down a different pathway or they heard a different yeah. message at that time. We, we've all got a different journey but don't, I guess my advice would be you don't need to define yourself by what someone else tells you you, mm. you are or are not, whether that be a toxic relationship that's defining you in a way that you're not, 
uh, a, a personal friendship that's actually not helpful, mm-hmm. that's really negative, um, or a medical practitioner just because they've got psychiatrists in front of their name doesn't mean that what how they define you is your reality. So I think you've got to find your truth and um, just like you would on any an operational setting, you'll find you had much more clarity, I felt, yeah. in an operational setting about what needed to be done. Even when there was confusion, I remember being very confused in a firefight thinking, and I don't know where the yeah. gunfire was coming from, and it was a close country environment, and thinking, I don't know what to do, whether we were supposed to, and I kind of looked around and people were looking at me to make yeah. a decision, I didn't know what to do, and I just remembered that maxim, when you, when you don't know what to do, move towards the sound of gunfire and kill everything you find. Mm. And it sounds pretty hardcore, but what it's saying is, you know, your instinct is to hide from the gunfire, but now you're going to move towards danger, which is counterintuitive. Every part of your fiber is telling you to hunker down on the ground and, and, yeah. and do nothing. And if that's a life maxim, it can be a bit the same, right? So to get up and mm. move towards it, you've done it before. Even if you've just been through basic training, you've done that before. The very fact that you've served, you've already achieved what mm. lots of other people can't. So get up and move towards that gunfire. And maybe you need to get a bit aggressive to do that. You know, you know I've sort of cautioned against yeah, that yeah. aggressive mindset. Time. But there are times, you know, when you've got to use that aggression to your advantage. It doesn't mean yeah. you can't ever be aggressive ever again. It's understanding... Um, how to harness that ag- aggression properly. And I found some books. Um, Ant Middleton, I read his book. Um, he's an ex-SBS operator that wrote a book uh, called um, Positivity, I think. Right. It was about positive mindset, essentially. And I took bits out of that. But, uh, you know, He says in his book, um, uh, he now can spot negativity a long way away and avoids it. I thought, yeah, I'll become a bit more attuned to Perhaps people in the workplace that are just, yeah, yeah. it's just going to be a negative interaction. So, you know yeah. what? I'm just going to not interact with them. Um, situations and environments that are going to be negative is, is, is just only moving towards positive mindset. How, have you find, how do you find that? Because I would so, imagine mm. you would encounter some people that you would probably spot or know as having or maybe being quite negative, but in your role, how do you how are you able to are you able to counter that or do you i would imagine you still need to engage with it to a degree right and try to i guess that's where you use the trying to help shape and bring them on the journey i guess yeah there's some of you know when you're forced to work with each other in an environment the and and again you've i just see that as a communication challenge and then move away from the situation i think i've been humbled by Mm -hmm. patients i've met who uh you know one of my most inspiring people I've met, uh, Jessica Irwin. Um, again, she's got her own sort of website uh, if you want to Google her, but she's got nonverbal. Jessica cerebral what palsy. Did you say? Je- Jessica Irwin, yeah, I R W I N. So she's got nonverbal cerebral palsy. Right. Uh, so here's a woman who can't verbalize or really move around without a wheelchair, yep. yet she is an artist. She runs a company. She gives motivational talks through a computer. Wow. Um, and you think, well, that's got to be a pretty positive mindset, right? Yeah. So I found increasingly I want to be around positive people. Mm. 
uh, and get better at spotting when an interaction or an environment is going to be negative and just avoid that altogether. So it's a little bit of avoidance behavior. I knew, you know, interacting with you is, is always positive. So I'm like, yeah, man, <laughs> I want to talk to Joe because it's going to be on a come away feeling like I've learned something and it's going to be a positive interaction. So I want, you want people to feel that way when they speak to you, a bit more conscious of, of your language when it's negative and, and the environment that you're in. So for veterans out there that are struggling, again, there's no one pathway out that works for everyone, but frequently the common themes are you're, you're in a negative space, perhaps a negative environment or a negative relationship, mm-hmm. or you're being defined by someone else's reality. Um, move towards the gunfire, get a bit aggressive and find yourself in a different environment, different situation, you know, getting out in the bush again. Mm. Um, you know, there's some fantastic groups in New Zealand now doing the um, uh, young Benfield running their yes, soldiers and sailors uh, associations, Gary Brandon slash, you know, the Onward Bar. Yeah, yeah. There's environments out there that people can connect with and reconnecting with people who have come through the other mm-hmm. side, like like yourself, who have been there, who understand it, like you got to. But you have to. You have to find yeah, those, right? Yeah. And, and and once you're doing that, you're already putting one foot in front of the other. And and then you will get there, and it won't be a quick journey, and it won't take a week. It might take yeah. ten years, but as long as you're moving in that direction, then that's the most important thing. Beautiful man, awesome. All right, Bill, I've, I've loved uh, this time here with you. I'd love to um, we'll have you, love to have you back again, so I'll send you through some details and stuff later on. But I, I, you've answered uh, and covered off on so much more than the questions that I had um, on here. And I just wonder, uh, I've got this question. I'm not sure. You, you may have already answered it to a degree, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It's in a combination of you now, you know, being a doctor, or an anaesthetist or anesthesiologist, the what has that taught you? Or no, let's no, let's change that question. Actually, I'm going to change and reframe it. What has your time in the SAS, being a doctor, being a helicopter pilot, and I didn't even touch on and talk about how many, however many jumps or thousands of jumps you've done um, from the parachuting side of things, just in your recreational, not including the military side. But what has all, what have all those experiences? And your relationship, obviously, with your wife and your children. What have all those experiences, if you could, and you can speak for as long as you like, if you were to summarize that or talk to it, what has that taught you about living life? All of those experiences combined. What has that taught Bill Bestick about the importance of living life? Because to me, it sounds like, you know, living your life is really important. You've got to be in it to, you know, to try to make that change and do all those sorts of things. If you were to think of those things and reflect on them in this moment anyway, and I know over time, you should write a book, by the way, so you should write a book. Um, but <laughs> So over time, you'll probably reflect on other things. But what have all of those things taught you about living your life? Yeah, I think it's taught me that who dares wins. Mm. That you can... You just don't be afraid to try. There's a lot of life to live out there. You don't have to live all of it. Your journey's for you. 
Um, don't let other people define you and whether you're achieving in life or not. Um, I want for less and less as I get older, not more and more. And and that it's taken me a long, long time, I'm 48 now, to really to figure out who I am and where I want to be in life. So yeah, no wonder I didn't know what I wanted at 19 or 20 or 25. Why would you? Who cares? Get into it. Yeah. Enjoy it. Um, you don't have to have a plan, a life plan. Um, I think I undervalued the importance of relationships mm-hmm. when I was younger, but too focused on the other. But the, the things that are really important to me in life now I didn't place a high enough value on when I was younger. But maybe that just comes with some time and maybe, you know, who knows. I think if you're reflecting, then you're you're going to live a full life and and coming to terms with your errors and mistakes and regrets is really important too because those things, those times where, you've, where you feel really bad because you've really done something, you know, you've really screwed up. I think they're really actually important components that make up who you are and you shouldn't want to change those. If, you, if anyone asks people, you know, what would you change in life? It should be nothing, right? Because no matter how bad that experience is, it, it'll, um, it can be positive if you yeah. choose it to be. So I think, I think that it sounds pretty corny, but that, that who dares wins is such a simple motto for life. I agree. Because it means that you, it doesn't it doesn't say who succeeds wins. Yeah. It says who dares wins. So you've only got to try yeah. and properly try, not half-assed try. Yeah. And you're going to learn something about yourself or about life. So if you can remove that barrier of fear of failure or fear of judgment yeah. from others, um, then man, what you can achieve, right? The um, it struck me the other week with a Springboks yeah. uh, against the All Blacks and the, the captain of the Springboks talking about when he grew up in Soweto, mm. he said the only thing that we really strived to be was like maybe a taxi driver. Wow. Because that's all the role models he had. He said, now I know that those kids playing on that dirt field in Soweto can look at me and know that they can be a Springbok mm. too. So you think, wow, isn't that how often in life that that people self-limit because they def- they look around just what's around them and go, well, I could only achieve this or that, or you know, I-, I only served as a private, so therefore I can't run a company, or any of that kind of um, self-limiting behaviour and mindset. Yeah, yeah. When actually, those are other people's definitions of you. So you. You can do whatever you want. You just have a go at it. No one's going to stop you, right? Yeah. If you want to be the prime minister, then yeah. go for it. Um, and if you don't make it, it doesn't matter. It's it's the fact that you tried yeah. is so much more important. And you can shed that sense of judgment of others or sense of failure within yourself. Then nothing will stop you. Beautiful, man. Hey, you. sorry, you, you triggered another memory when you spoke about Soweto in South Africa. Can you just speak a bit about that? So that you were working, and from what I understand, only purely based on what you've shared with me, the busiest trauma uh, hospital or place there in the world. How did that come about? And 
how was that experience? You don't need to. You can talk about the details if you want, but I would imagine the stuff that you would have seen working in the busiest trauma hospital in the world on the planet that that would have that that's had some impact on you, right? Effect um, from a emotional perspective, what you've would have seen visually. I, I would only imagine what was that? How did that come about? And what has that experience taught you? Uh, it came about from a newspaper article I read about this hospital called the Baraguanath or Krishani Baraguanath Hospital in Soweto. Uh, so I wrote to them and said, "Can I come and come and play?" And did you volunteer? Yeah. You, did you volunteer? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was unpaid. Um, so they're used to people coming on attachments and and working there, right. and yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, uh, I haven't to be honest, found any great emotional impact from yeah. dealing with trauma patients. Yeah. Um, not that I don't, not that I'm not empathetic or compassionate. It's just that I'm very, very focused mm. on learning and doing. And um, whereas uh, unless the patient has, you know, if, if it's a young child, yeah or as a similar correlation to a member of my family, it definitely has a much more emotional mm. impact. But my role, I feel very much, is to keep my emotion in check and and be the doctor that patient needs you to be, and they need you to be um, on your game. So that, that, that means that your brain is cognitively loaded with figuring out all those other aspects, and it, it's much, much harder to be observer to that than it is to be immersed gotcha. in it. And I wonder if that's why, to some extent, if you look at um, trauma, emotional trauma from some of the events that you and I have been involved mm-hmm. in, that as the operator, it's sometimes less traumatic than for someone in a rear yeah, area yeah. that actually, say, living in a base in an offshore like Afghanistan or Iraq and never leaving the base is in some ways much, much more stressful than when you leave the base every night. Yeah. And I think sometimes the rates of PTSD reflect that, that. Yeah, that's a great point. I was just going to say, yeah, I I've, I've have uh, experiences of those with, with the, I guess you'd call them, yeah, their support attached staff that have suffered. And, and I've looked at that. I've come to learn over time because I was quite judgmental. Yeah, I was the same. I, yeah. yeah, and I've learned to just dial that back. Yeah. But, yeah, I relate to what you're saying. Yeah, and I think I was like you. You kind of think, well, you know, I'm at the sharp end. What do you got yeah. to be worried about? But. <laughs> It's actually, um, you know, it, it's more terrifying for the passenger of a of an aircraft that's having an emergency than it is for the pilot. Yeah, yeah. Because the pilot's engaged with what needs to happen, whereas the passenger's just being carried along for the ride. And I think support personnel are in a similar boat. Um, that's a great analogy, yeah. You know, we get to leave the wire and actually confront the bogeyman and be on the wire and personalise it and see it and control it in some, to some degree. Whereas they don't, they're worried about random rocket attacks or yeah. um, when my dad talking about in Vietnam that one of the guys that died, he'd been sent to be in the headquarters of this Australian task force in an air-conditioned headquarters, spent his entire tour there and was bitten by a mosquito, got cerebral malaria and died. Oh, far out. Versus guys uh, that are yeah, patrolling yeah. all day, every day. And I think sometimes yeah. when you're patrolling and – you know, I found Iraq a bit like this. Um, yeah. You know, it was the fear of IEDs going off. Yeah. It's patrolling in the jungle where you're anticipating mm. being ambushed. That when it actually happens, it's 
it's so much easier to deal with than the anticipation of the event. Mm. And I think um, I've become a lot more understanding of people who have been exposed to yeah. trauma that don't get a chance to control it. Yep. Um, even being on a ship, I used to think, well, how does someone in the Navy on a ship have PTSD? Mm. Yeah. And I'd be like, well, you get three hot meals and a shower. What are you whinging about? <laughs> but if you're in an environment where you're worried about burning alive or a missile strike or you go to action stations, then that would actually be a lot worse being several decks down mm. in firefighting flash gear, yeah. wondering if you're going to drown yeah, yeah. or sink than it would be for us. And I think that, you know, trauma in terms of um, patient trauma is similar don't tend to get very i don't if i reflect well i, I reflect on cases but mm. it's more about the clinical performance or well, it's actually only really ever about the clinical performance yeah um so yeah it's not i don't find it's emotionally taxing um and you're so immersed in learning because every every case you're learning something that you're going to apply to someone else so you're really heavily cognitively invested in the detail of what's how this person's been injured I mean, there's a lot of gunshot there yeah. uh and then what doctors are doing to treat that yeah, right. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was, oh, man, oh, it was awesome. I loved it. Was there, while you were there, is there different, uh, are they well equipped in terms of, no. They're not, no, they're not, all right. Not really. I mean, they're so overwhelmed. I mean, yeah. Baraguana services uh, the population of Soweto, which is about 1.1 million blacks. Yep. It's the most violent suburb oh, really? on the planet. Um. There's, it's a huge hospital. There's uh, 3,000 beds. So most hospitals in Australia would be four or 500 beds. Our wow. biggest hospitals might be maybe 700 beds. This is 3,000. There's 10 kilometres of corridors. I mean, the place is huge, but it just can't cope with the volume of trauma that comes in. Wow. Um, so having five or six people die in a shift would not be uncommon, whereas to have a death on a shift in a hospital would be uncommon. Wow. Yeah, we might deal with one major trauma in a shift. Yeah. Sometimes none. Frequently none. Yeah. Whereas there you just, just every day. You just pause through the door. Wow. Yeah. Um so yeah, they don't have the equipment. Um and they they're brutal. They make brutal decisions around who gets treated and who doesn't. Yeah, right. Um and it's not the same oversight to complications or it's not like you're gonna get sued. So even when you can make a pretty bad mistake and a patient might die from it, no one's going to come knocking. Oh, yeah. So it's a very different environment. Very sort of, it's where the British Army used to send their trauma medics to gain experience before yeah, right. going to war zones. I think they probably don't need to do that anymore after Afghanistan. Yeah. But, yeah, it was definitely uh, – you learn a lot about battlefield trauma, yeah. yeah. It's great. Oh, right. Yeah, good from that learning perspective and the, and the training by the sounds of things. Yeah. What, um, so what is what is next in this? Have, I know you, you talk about uh, and have spoken about breaking things down and having this uh, daily approach to things or the advice that you've shared so far, but have you thought about what lies next? Like is there something on the plans for your 50th in terms of the next <laughs> adventure or the project? Uh, the, the next adventure is um, to fly around yep. Australia by helicopter. So... Um, We'll probably take two or three months, just my wife and I, and we'll just um, dive our way around the country, like caravan style, but in a helicopter. Yeah. Um, but other than that, mate, I'm just really enjoying 
just taking a breath and for the first time ever, I think, just enjoying where I am. I'm really grateful for things that I've got. I think I've been through some difficult personal Mm. journeys and I feel I've, for the first time in a long time, got a bit of mastery over myself and that I'm doing things for me, uh, not in a selfish way, but not doing things because I think other people have an expectation or that I'm trying to get an accolade or something. I just want to be really good at what I do. Then I leave work at work and I want to be really good at being at home. Um, I wish I was learnt, I wish I was doing this a long time ago. Uh, but I guess maybe those experiences have got me to this sense of um, I'm very content at the moment in life. So currently not seeking anything. Yeah. I'm always looking though. Something will come up. <laughs> oh, that's good to hear. Bill, brother, I just want to really acknowledge you and thank you for your time, for the the advice and the wisdom that you have shared in this interview, in this conversation with me. I've really gained a lot out of it. I love the way that you've been so raw and open and honest with everything that we've spoken about. I love the way that you've tied things and knitted them together in a way that it's not just talking about your time in the Defence Force or your time as a doctor, but how those applications can be woven into our everyday life. I love the advice that you've shared, which will be a benefit for those that might be struggling with this post-traumatic stress or this chronic, what do you call it, chronic injury? Chronic stress injury, chronic yeah. stress injury. I love that description. Um, love the way that you, you turn up each day and try to be that little bit better um, each time and breaking down what you go through each day um, and what you can control and focus on and work towards. Got some great bits of uh, notes scribbled down here, which I'm really looking forward to going through and digesting around the positive mindset. And I love that piece around you only fail if you choose to stop trying. Um, just just brilliant advice, my brother. And it's been a long time uh, since I've had the privilege and opportunity to see you and to let alone hear and connect with you. So just really want to thank you, Bill, for your time today. And um, Aotearoa, ladies and gentlemen, you've, we've had the privilege of listening to uh, Mr. Bill Bestick, the one and only. If you have any final words from your side, Bill, now is your time. And then otherwise, I'll wrap up and close up this this session, this conversation with you, my brother. Oh, I appreciate you reaching out, man. Like, um, yeah, I've always been a big fan of yours. And uh, even even in the days when you, you know, on CQB, I remember being on the receiving end of um, of some of your punches, <laughs> always left my head ringing. Uh <laughs> But you've always been a good operator, professional, and you've always been, always had that component to you that's about looking out for others. And I think what you're doing is an awesome endeavor. It doesn't surprise me that you're doing something like this. Um, and I know it won't be the last thing you do. You, you're always looking to try to assist and help others. The world needs more people like you. So mm. if somebody gets something out of our conversation and our ramblings <laughs> and our, you know, dribble <laughs> today, well, that's yeah. good. Um if they don't, well, you and I have had a good chance to yeah. have a quarter or bro. hundred <laughs> percent. No, I appreciate you, Bill. Thank you so much. You know, your friendship and leadership over the years has meant so much to me, still does today. And I look forward to when we can actually connect face to face, sit down and, uh, and share some time together in person and meet the wonderful better half of yours, Melissa. I've heard about her and how she would, uh, how she chooses your clothes. And I believe she still dressed yeah. as you. Is that right? 
Yeah, she does. But, you know, let's not forget she's also done well. She's quite lucky. Um, so we can't, you know, yeah. let's not overplay that too much. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Good. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing any burpees with you, by the way. I'm, I'm too old for that, mate. We'll bring you in. <laughs> no, Bill, appreciate you, brother. Love you very much, my friend. Grateful for your time. Ladies and gentlemen, Aotearoa, you've been listening to the one and only Mr. Bill Bestick. And I'll sign off by saying respectfully, who dares wins. Awesome, man. If you enjoyed this conversation, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media. Be sure to hit that notification bell so that you can be kept up to date with more inspiring messages from amazing New Zealanders each and every week. If you found this discussion helpful, we invite you to share this link with your networks and tag Brian and I when you do. We would love to hear from you. So please be sure to leave us a review so that we can continually strive to provide the best service possible. As Abraham Lincoln said, the best way to predict your future is to create it. We thank you for your support, Aotearoa, and we're excited to partner with you in working together to create a better future. Let's go. Let's go.